<laughs> Hello, boils and ghouls. This is John Kassir, the voice of The Crypt Keeper. And you're listening to Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers, hosted by Dion and Blake. <laughs> You like my new slippers? Those are nice. Aren't those like nice? Are they comfy? Yeah, they're pretty comfy. They're huge, though. Your feet sweating, though? Yeah, that's the problem. Is <laughs> I, I, My feet sweat easily, and these things are gargantuan. So, you know, and then when I get up and move, they don't have a a, a, a kind of a surface on the bottom. You sliding all <laughs> yeah, over? Yeah, sliding all over the place because it's just <laughs> fur. You need some traction on the bottom. and then You're going to get up and get a glass of water. I'm just going to hear like... <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Well, that happened before. And I'm all right. <laughs> yeah, I'm okay. <laughs> <laughs> that happened before when I went to go get another beer in your mom's um, um, living room, uh, in the dining room. But, um, you know, it's, it's all hardwood floor in Blake's house. You got to go slow because it's all creaky, too. Always waking people up. That's the worst, trying to walk around at night on a... And, you know, nothing nothing makes any sounds until the li- the sun goes down yeah. and then everything creaks. And, and then you're <laughs> trying to walk like... like, like <laughs> Who's down there? <laughs> seems like the f- slower, the seems like the quieter you try to go, the more uh, the louder you are, the louder it ends up being. Hey, um, you know, <laughs> you know what, Blake? What, Dion? <laughs> Welcome to Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers, the only podcast to, 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 that to features Dion, Dion and myself. J- <laughs> Jay Blake. J is for Jarrell. <coughs> We're back again. This is the episode four. We're closing out the moderately slow burning, successful. 2019 October creepy horror movie extravaganza. Well, this they always say, they've always said that the anthology horror movie is a tough sell. It is. And, and apparently <laughs> it's a tough sell for our audience as well. Yes. And you know what? If, 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 the, if, the, if the dolphin isn't out of the bag yet, <laughs> if that dolphin ain't out of the paper bag yet... Uh, you know, we've been we've been we've been serving up some anthology movies for you this this season. We had the the proverbial coal stove on, and we had the big old pie thing, and we were been moving those pizzas around, keeping them. Get, there's a center of the oven; you got to feel where it's hot. <laughs> you got to keep those pizzas moving, and it's hard because 
me and Blake, it's like a freaking Abbott and Costello routine <laughs> of us trying to do stuff. You know, Laurel and Hardy. Laurel and Hardy. Well, me Depending being Costello, the- <laughs> you, you're the straight man. I'm the idiot. So the, uh, Martin and Lewis, whoever you want to be. So this is uh, like the onset. That we're coming to the close of our, ni- of our 2019 October month of horror movie extravaganzas. <laughs> I almost, I almost had beer come out of my nose right there. Yes, the, the horror movies. And this year we, we were themed. Yeah, and this is an idea that went back as I put my feet up. Um, at least six months, I would say, right? Back in the, in the cold winter months of um, the late winter of old 20-odd 19, <laughs> 2019, um, we were thinking about um, looking forward to the, to, the, to the October horror movie extravaganza on our little chalkboard. You know, we try to plan ahead. So we had our Etch-A-Sketch out. And then we kept losing it because I would put it down. It would fit. so we started using the light bright. <laughs> kept putting it on the uh, on the on the vibrating yeah. <laughs> massaging chair. Yeah. <laughs> so we come back like, oh, it's ruined. My my, my work is ruined. Uh, out of that Brookstone that's now uh, R.I.P. Brookstone. So, um, for, yeah, about at least six months ago or so, we kind of came up with the tentative idea of doing anthologies, and we had, I think. Maybe locked in at least creep show. Yeah, uh, we had uh, I think maybe trick or treat. Right, maybe locked in. We talked about doing yeah. trick or treat, and I think like we were in talks of the tales from the crypt. I think we were. I think you know we were pretty much almost set on doing tales from the crypt, the seventies movie. Yeah, the Amicus, and then the idea of doing that as a double feature with Vault of Horror was kind of almost last minute. Yeah, you know as we approached, and like you know what. It's on the same disc. <laughs> <laughs> All you gotta do is I, we, got, we got both of them. Yeah, Let's right, yeah. do both. I got the Midnight Movies edition, uh, and then up until the very last minute here, we've literally been shuffling VHS tapes. Yeah, and uh, because we had a two-day sleepover, it has been like, "All right, I'm gonna put the two tapes behind my back. <laughs> yeah. Choose right or left. One is Tales from the Crypt, the movie. The other is <laughs> the Twilight Zone movie. <laughs> Which one are we gonna do? And no, that's a lie because uh, the Twilight Zone <laughs> the movie was yeah. Actually, we were <laughs> actually very afraid that once people realized what we were doing this month as a theme, that uh, they were they would banter automatically about us. Ass- assume that we were going to close it all out with Twilight yeah. Zone the movie. Not to even because we've had a lot of requests for Twilight Zone. The yeah, movie. yeah, we're not tooting our own horn here. We're not sucking our own dicks over here. It was just that you know it's such a weighty topic, and um, that's gonna I, that might have to be. Even though it's a little off base from what we usually do for an anniversary episode, that, that might we may have to save it for an anniversary episode because that's going to be a mammoth episode. That might uh, uh, I was going to say uh, it might take over and appropriate an episode. How big that damn thing is? There's a there's a lot of lot to unpack there. There's uh, a big table to set. Um, Not just the show. No, n- <laughs> Jesus! I, I even <laughs> thought about the Rod Serling show. You're right. That is like a that is a two taper. <laughs> it's the it's the whole. We're gonna have to put that baby on SLP. <laughs> yeah, yeah, SLP. This hopefully, or you gotta get the ELP, whichever it was that you get the eight hours. You know, the, some of those tapes, uh, because you'd have to talk about. You'd have to unpack. I mean, and people may roll their eyes because our podcast is so long, but we like to talk. And we talk about nothing, but we'd Look, have to. We only get to see each other once every two. <laughs> and, and you're hearing the conversation <laughs> on on high fidelity. But we'd have to talk about the Twilight Zone show, uh, the show Rod Serling show. We'd have to talk about. I mean, we honorable mention probably the Night Gallery, and that brings up last week. If the astute listener, when we were bantering about, I said uh, Night Stalker and said Portavoy, talking about the pilot to the Night Gallery show because that was an anthology show. Yeah. But I said that by accident. Night 
Stalker Night Gallery. It was Night Gallery I met with Rod. Rod, uh, Got the night right. Roddy McDowell, Portavoa. So um, anyway, we honorable mention maybe the Night Gallery, and then we would talk about the big, and that's the reason part two would be so big is then because there was a huge controversy, which we've yeah. alluded to. Oh, it's law. Yeah. yeah Kids court. killed. Uh, people, three people murdered on set, and it involved Spielberg. It involved uh, some of the biggest names in Hollywood. So that would, and then there's a whole book written about it, so we'd have to unpack the book and not go through the logistics of a legal trial. <laughs> and then, <laughs> the, then they put a motion into <laughs> <laughs> and then they were, but the, meanwhile, there was a suppression of that. But then there was discovery. It would, it would be too yeah. much to do, especially when for we're doing October. When we're doing four in a row. I mean, this is even, you know, I, I feel like some of the podcasts we've been putting out, you know, you know, uh, they're, you know, they're, they're up to the best editing standards we could do on like a weekly basis. <laughs> you know, we're turning around something so quickly and that might not sound like a lot, but as you get older, you start to lose time and I don't know where it goes, but yeah, I mean, that's, you know, I wake up and then I'm like, a round of applause to Dion. Oh, who, stop. No, I'm not saying that. <laughs> puts in endless hours of, uh, post-production. I, I probably do it. I probably don't do it the best way. I do it my own way. Well, so. yeah, I mean, but it's still when you're editing like a three hour show. And then I have and to, have to, to mix it. <laughs> Just the mixing alone would take me. <laughs> you know. Well, that's the thing too. Is is sometimes people will complain like, "Oh, Blake doesn't sound so loud," or "Dion, you're booming." And it's like, well, we don't. We need to invest in an actual mixing board so that we can do it on the fly here. Which I know. Is, you know. Just using that Fisher Price <laughs> yeah, tape recorder, yeah, <laughs> passing the mic back and forth. <laughs> so when we get that thing onto a onto a reel to reel to a moviola to to, to to edit, you know, linearly with a splicer, sometimes it's hard to raise. All, you know, for three hours you're gonna sit there and raise the volumes and stuff. So we try to do what we do, but it's a process of like we have to end up. Um, what do you call that? You have to uh, render it out, and then I listen to it on the way to work. That's why I don't listen to anything, because yeah. half my week is spent listening to us. <laughs> and then Bullshit. Yeah, and then hours. the worst, there's nothing w- worse feeling in the world getting into the minutia of mixing, uh, spending an hour or an hour and a half mixing, like, all, this, all the elements of the show. You think you're at a good place. You put your headphones on, you start walking to the train, and you turn it on, and immediately you realize something's fucking wrong. You're like, oh. <laughs> you know, and then you realize you're going to have to go back and remix that son of a bitch again. It's so. kind of like the um, the Les Paul used to say with Mary Ford, like uh, you know they would every time you mix, you're mixing on top of stuff. So sometimes yeah. if you if you scrap it, you lose everything. You can't go back because it's you know it's w- mixing on a moviola. I know. So, so you know, I just don't know how many times we've redone entire you know, episodes. Yeah, because Dion's hit the delete <laughs> button by accident, or Dion's <laughs> not hit the record button either. But what I say, you know. Hey, what do you want for nothing? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, as our old friend uh, used to say at, at Purchase uh, College uh, Cafeteria, what do you want for nothing? What was his name? Sax. Sax, right? God rest his soul. I still think about Sax, but he's probably passed away, huh? That's a story for another time. Oh, yeah. We're, t- we're already, we haven't even got the car to drive yet <laughs> or turn the keys on. So, but it is, as Twilight Zone would have been too much to do. Yes. You know, and, and so we knew that we weren't going to do Twilight Zone. Yeah. And but we then there, needed. But then there was the, then there was the discussion of like, well, then what else are we going to do? And then we were, then we, that's when we started writing every, my mom said, you know what you boys have to do? She gave us an index card. She goes right out. All the anthologies you can think <laughs> of, and put them in this old Mets cap, 1986 World Series Mets. So we 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 put we, so Blake's like um, uh, Black Sabbath, and I'm like Tales from the Hood, and Blake's like uh, Spirits of the Dead, and then I'm like um, uh, uh, 
uh, night gallery, <laughs> and then Blake's VHS. like VHS, and I'm like VHS two, and then I'm um, Tales like, of Halloween, Tales of Halloween, ones. and then I'm like, uh, uh, you know, and I'm like that one, and then right, you know. Right. So then we had to switch hats because that hat was not big enough. <laughs> no, it wasn't big enough because yeah. it had the net <laughs> in the back, <laughs> sweat stains. You had to get a, a big old uh, one of Dion's dad's old uh, knit. <laughs> with the ball on top. <laughs> yeah, stretch the shit out of that. <laughs> oh, he's going to be pissed for a snowstorm. And he goes to put that thing on, and it goes down to his neck. He's like, what the fuck? You can't see anything. Claire, you, what did you do? What did you do? He's like, I don't wash that. Look at that. Look at it. It's made out of fucking, uh, what is that material? Yarn. It's yarn. I can't wash yarn, you fuck. Look how big it is. Who's been playing with Dion and his friends were playing with that six months ago. Anyway, so yeah, so we, we at the last minute, long about way is that we're saying is that we didn't know what the heck to do. The la- even to like last week, we were shuffling about. We just completed Creep Show and we're like, okay, we're going to see you next weekend. And then we're like, well, what are we going to do? So it's been a back and forth yeah. all week. I mean, in some ways, you know, like in some ways, like Creep Show, we really should have gone out with a big bang. That should have ended it. We should have ended with Creep Show, and but then, we wanted it to come right after Tales from the Crypt and Vault of Horror, because, like I said in the Creep Show episode, it's almost like a two-parter because we set the table with all DC comic stuff, and then that's what influenced Creep Show, and also partially why they ended up in the middle is because, as Dion and I have been saying, we didn't know what we were going, what the fourth movie was going to be yeah, until last night. And there's a level of programming here where we had to figure out what's going to play off each other because we got four movies back to back and there is a common theme the anthology so we're like okay why don't we open it up usually we've said before we open we have we'll keep the halloween centric movie to the end and then but that was kind of like the easiest one to kind of cover because there's not a lot there yeah and then the big one was i guess kind of tales from the crypt because then we were like well where do we put the ec comics conversation do we put it in creep show do we put it in tales so we're like well, we'll put it in tales from the crypt yeah. what the fuck and then that will leave us room with creep show to talk about all the fun romero savini stuff and then that's when we're here we're like okay we got w- one left we got a slot what are we gonna do and we're trying to figure it out we're like well you know what we love tales from the dark side the movie it kind of Blake's like well, it kind of goes with the pattern. Yeah, of what it is kind of like everything's kind of linked in a weird way. Tail, you know, as we established when we did uh, Trick or Treat with the comic book many moons ago, with the comic book theme of the trans- some of the transitions and the credits and stuff. It's obviously like an homage to Creep Show. Yeah, so you know, we kind of started off with like an homage to everything we were about to do. Yeah, and or what we've done in the past. <clears throat> I said Garfield, Garfield's Halloween, and we, there's. Carpenter's Halloween as well. You know, all the stuff we've covered in the... Uh, another Christmas is long ago. <laughs> yeah, but in terms of... Uh, st- stylistically, it's kind of an homage to what was going to come. Yeah. So we kind of started at the end. <laughs> and then we looped back. We pulled a Tarantino. Yeah, so, yeah, we started, yeah, we started at the end at, at, the, at everyone pointing a gun at each other. <laughs> and it's, is it a John Woo movie? No, it's a Tarantino movie. And then we went back to the beginning. We talked about EC Comics, EC Comics and anthologies. Yeah. And then Creep Show. And now, in chronological order, you know, th- the next step in the evolution of Creepshow... Creepshow 2. Was Creepshow 2, but also, e- probably even before that, was Tales from Dark Side, the television series. Yeah, and this is actually fun because I never thought we would... Up until last week, I never thought we'd talk about Tales from the Dark Side. Um, the television series, as well as the movie. And the yeah. movie is a movie I haven't seen in probably 25 years. I mean, I rem- the last time I, I'd seen it growing up, in my initial, I remember seeing the trailer on TV, 
And I remember at the time seeing, and this is interesting because what is it, 1990? So I'm 10 or 11 at the time. I remember, I remember watching it and then seeing Christian Slater at the very end with the electric knife which still that shot freaks me out yeah and i was like oh he's really <laughs> at the time i even said like oh he's really slumming it where because he was blowing up christian slater was huge at the time I was like oh they got christian slater in this this is this is like a bona fide horror movie it's not a b level it's a level because yeah. you know he was going to be going on to do cuffs and all the other christian he was just the radio what's was, the radio movie he does you know where he's the oh, disc yeah, jockey you know no what's yeah but yeah, you know, I know what you're, I don't but he, you know, he, was, he was blowing up at that time he was probably just about to be in young guns <laughs> you know what i mean young guns too and uh so it's like oh it's christian slater so i remember that Cleaning initially the cube yes exactly that one as well and then when i saw the movie i had already been familiar with pritzy's honor and buster poindexter so i knew the two of them the old man and and buster poindexter what's his face david johansson mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and then the, that was the first time I'd seen the movie. And then when yeah. I ever revisited this about 20, 25 years ago, I recognized Steve Buscemi, Julianne Moore, Julianna Moore, you know, and uh, I feel like there's somebody else in there that's kind of famous too uh, that I'm forgetting at the moment. But anyway, and uh, so I was like, oh, you know, but before all that, there was the, we were all familiar our age with the Tales from the Crypt, Tales from the Dark Side, the movie. <laughs> <laughs> Tales from the Dark Side, the TV show. Yeah. And that was something that used to, I guess, in reading, in preparation for this, they said when it went into syndication, they would air it really late at night or after midnight on, on a lot of the affiliates. And that's how I remember seeing it. I remember it getting to be a certain time at night. I didn't think it was as late as midnight, but it was like after 11. Yeah. And you turn it on. That's <laughs> 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 really leaving me a small window. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I you, you thought it was twelve. You thought it was eleven thirty. No, exactly. <laughs> it's <just> crazy. <laughs> um, but it was it was late. You know, it was, it was like between ten and twelve. I thought I would see it. Ten thirty, eleven, eleven. I didn't think it was midnight. But you'd see that opening, and that opening scared the shit out of you. I that, mean, for me, that opening track, you know, by Donald Rubenstein. Yeah, and then the even the imagery of like where they are, and then you see that 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 farm and the silo in the distance, and then you see, and it looks all serene with the lake. But then when they well, when you get to the silo, I think that's a little scary because I'm thinking of seeing like zombies walking over the hill because of my scare for Z- Night of the Living Dead. But when they get to that the the forest and those type of tr- and I I wish I knew the name of those damn trees, but those forests are so scary because they get so dark in the background. You know you can't see into them. Mm-hmm. And then when they do that flip, you know when when it does a you know and you see the negative image scared the shit. And that's almost like where you have to make a decision with yourself: Are you gonna you know commit and watch this, or are you gonna turn it off? And I will admit, full disclosure, sometimes I think I turned it off because mm-hmm. I just was like, it's it, I can't deal with something very... Because Tales from the Dark Side was a scary show. And we can get into it. It didn't have the... For the most part, it didn't have the comedy or the satire that like a Tales from the Crypt later had. Yeah. Or even the, I don't know, a cheesy or campiness, but like the... the, the Probably cheesy or campy now. But it didn't have the stuff that you see in Creepshow. In that, it, in that show. it's dated. But yeah. at the time, it was like what uh, the way everything looked. You know? Yeah, it didn't have any of that. You know, the 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 camp, not the campiness, but what the creep show had putting on uh, display the EC Comics elements and stuff. So when you when this came on, like you said, it is dated with witches and stuff like that. But it was a scary. There's but also there's, just like the video quality and yeah. the fashion. But at the time, it was freaky. That's the way everything. Looked. And I don't even know if it's gotten. Uh, I mean, I have it on DVD, and I'm familiar with the first season. Be- and I just—I think there's about four seasons, and I haven't been able to go past that because uh, I'm, you know, have just do a lot. But um, I don't know if they've ever had a remaster because the DVD ones I have are kind of, you know, they're probably the original 480i, yeah, yeah, you know, kind of a look. 
I know, um, I don't know if they're still on there, but at least for a while, Shudder, you could watch them on Shudder. Yeah. And uh, I don't know. I mean, they probably had to up them, up-res them to HD, but that shit wasn't even shot in HD, so it probably is never going to look Were they shot on great. video? Were they like the, twi- the Twilight Zone 80 show? I would imagine show? it probably was. Because <coughs> I thought, the, um, I watched a couple of these to, to revisit for the first season before this, and I thought some of it might be filmed, but then I don't know if yeah. after film it could be, their co- like they did with the, the, the Twilight Zone 80 series, they would cut it on video. So once they shot that shit and they got that shit printed, they would they might not even make work prints. They may just get dubs on tape mm-hmm. and then cut everything off of tape. And that's why I think they say there might be some issues with doing a proper remaster of the old Twilight Zone 80 show because you have to go back and find the, the negatives for all that because yeah. you're working off these video prints or whatever. But uh, here, there were some really freaky episodes. I remember being at my friend Martin, who I bring up all the time, his house in his basement watching this. And there was one or two episodes that like scared the shit out of me where I'm like sleeping over his house. And you know, it was still, I was still young enough at the time, seven, eight, nine, seeing this stuff where you, know, you have an episode about something in your closet or under your bed. You know, that, w- that would stay with you for the night. You sure. try to go to sleep and turn the lights out, and you think that some witch is going to come through the window. Well, I mean, you know? they were also featuring stories by, like, Stephen King and Clive Barker. Romero. And, and Romero. Yeah. And uh, all kinds of, you know, even dating back to... Robert know, Block. You know, but like... Har- Harlan Ellison. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> some of the greats. Yeah. In the field of, you know, that kind of story. So, uh, like Dion said, it, it didn't <clears throat> often have... Uh, you know, a bit of the the intentional campiness of something like Creepshow. Uh, oddly enough, you know, if when you research it, and I don't know, I, I, I know for a fact that some of the stuff that's in the research is not correct because I've interviewed people involved with the movie. In terms of the movie, I don't know so much know about the show, but uh, there is, you know, information out there that says that how... Tales from the Dark Side came about was after the success of Creepshow, uh, Richard Rubenstein and and Romero wanted to do a Creepshow television series. Yeah. And I guess because of, you know, they didn't own all the rights, they shared the rights with, I think, Warner Brothers, uh, they weren't actually able to do it as a television show. So Rubenstein decided that he wanted to do a different kind of anthology show, and that's how Tales from the Dark Side came about. Romero, I believe, is on there as like executive producer, but it's my understanding that he really didn't have anything to do with the show other than putting his name on it. He wrote, I think, he wrote the pilot, the Trick or Treat, yeah, which ends up being episode one as well. But in terms of like actually producing sure. the show, like being the day, a hand, the yeah. day to day of the series, I don't believe he really had much to do with it. Um, John Harrison, who we talked about in Creep Show, in our Creep Show episode, who was the first assistant director and scored. Creep Show. He went on to uh, direct several episodes of Tales from the Dark Side, the television show, and score the episodes that he did. Um, so there's, they're definitely uh, pulling from their, you know, their stable of talent. Because this is also, if I'm not mistaken, is this where Savini also gets like his feet wet as a director? Doesn't he direct an episode? Yeah, there's an episode called, uh, I think it's, I think it's called In the Closet. Or uh, inside the closet, and uh, he directed it, and it has Fritz Weaver in it, who we remember, who was in the crate episode of Creepshow, and uh, and it's it's a 
thing about where the Fritz Reavers running a boarding house and he rents it out to young college girls and he's really strict about you can you know no after midnight you can't talk whatever quiet but in the room he rents it out there's a closet door and he's like and that's locked and don't ever think about that and I'm like oh, okay but at night the door opens and come to find out that it's like this little kind of it looks like almost like a ghoulie. Yeah. living in the and I think it's his daughter but that image I've seen in a lot of the Savini books and I've never figured out what what it is and it also has a very creepy like Argento kind of a score to it but it was a very nice animatronic kind of thing he made for that episode um, and, and I don't know if that might be his directorial debut Savini there yeah doing it that might be I you mean, know I, I would imagine I can't think of anything off the top of my head yeah. that he and would have done before there's that. A, I think episode two or three uh, is a fabulous episode called I'll, I think it's called I'll give you a million dollars and it has starring in it the great Keenan win the great George Petrie who I've brought up on the planes trains and automobiles episode because at the end of the sh- when they get to John Candy's house they get to Steve Martin's house. He's one of the grandparents there. He's like the fifth honeymooner on the honeymooners. He was the guy that would play like Ralph's friend from the bus department or what, whatever they needed an extra guy. Yeah. He'd be the guy to come over. And he's in it with Keenan Wynn. And uh, that was directed by John Harrison. And it's about where they're bo- two really mean, rich auto uh, million barons, you know, like very much like Mortimer and what's his face from the, uh, from the, uh, um, the the movie with uh, Eddie Murphy where they Brewster's oh, Millions, yeah. you know where they're they're you know and so they're and they're that's uh, that's not Brewster's Millions. It's not Brewster's Millions. Brewster's Millions is where tra- trading places, trading places. Yeah, Brewster's Millions is where he has to him John Candy Richard Pryor have to go. Yeah. Uh, so, but it's like trading places where they're, they're they're super rich and they don't know what to do with their money and they're both real like like you know they they've ruined people's lives that kind of rich and so. Uh, Keenan Wynn gets George Petrie to sell him his soul. He's like, I'll give you a million dollars for your soul. He's like, why would you want my soul? And he's like, well, then why don't you give it to me? And then he sells him the soul, and then George Petrie dies, and George Petrie comes back uh, with the soul, and then Satan comes. It's a really freaky episode. Yeah. Uh, and then there's another one off the first season, which is called, I think, WordPress, Word, uh, Word Processor of the Gods, which is uh, written by Stephen King, but it's adapted by, I think the guy's name is Michael McDowell, and he does a lot of the stories, writes a lot of the stories. Yeah. And he, Michael Michael McDowell. Yeah, he's the one that wrote most of the stuff for the movie. Yeah. He adapts the Stephen King short story, and that stars Bruce Davidson, who we know from Willard, and he, I think he's been one of the X-Men movies and a bunch of stuff. And that's, you know, a yeah. very good episode about, uh, you know, this word processor that if he, whatever he does on the word pro- processor, if he hits enter or delete, it affects the world around him. Uh, very good episode. So, you know, they're, they're putting in very good... Uh, installment episodes and then the, the the pilot episode which is written by Romero which is really good is about this really old crotchety guy who owns a haberdashery in this small town and everybody has an IOU to him and his shtick is every uh, Halloween he requires the people that owe him money to have their kids come over and he wants to scare the shit out of him because he makes a haunted house in his house and the sh- uh, the trick is if the kid's able to go inside he has the IOUs hidden somewhere and he says it's in a very obvious place I you know I, 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 I'm not playing any games if they can find it they can you know you can get your money back or whatever and he likes scaring the shit out of these kids and completely destroying them and then this witch actually comes to the house and messes with him you know so they're very good uh, you know 20-25 minute anthology episodes and they end up burning out what four seasons of this? They do four seasons the pilot um, premieres uh, around Halloween, around this time. Apropos, like we said, it's called <laughs> Trick or Treat. Uh, uh, in in 83. And then apparently the show doesn't get sold into syndication until 84. So there's a like a year 
where I guess they're just trying to sell the idea of the show based on the, the, the pilot. And does it have, I don't think, th- does the pilot not have the beginning initially, the beginning? That I don't know. Yeah, until I thought they maybe reused it when they turned it into the show. Yeah. They tacked on the, they the opening. Have. And the music is, uh, the theme is written by uh, Donald Rubenstein, who's the brother of Richard Rubenstein, the producer, and Donald did the music for Martin, which we've talked about. And there's actually a little nod to Martin in the movie that we're discussing tonight. From 1990. And uh, now, this is, you know, Tales from the Dark Side, the movie, was a movie that I experienced at a sleepover. I remember renting it. There was a time around 1990 where every week either I would sleep over my friend Joe St. Martin's house or the next, and then the next week he would sleep over my house. And we, you know, we had endless sleepovers and a lot of the nostalgia that I have for watching movies at sleepovers uh, originated from those sleepovers. And um, I remember renting it and then we went upstairs and played and I have a recollection and I think it is this movie, but I remember we went upstairs and we played and I think my parents watched it downstairs and then we came, and then when they went to bed, we came downstairs to watch it, and the movie was queued up. Oh, I think you told me this. I think it was this. I think it was this movie. I could be mistaken, but I th- I'm pretty sure it was this movie. And the movie was queued up to the beginning of the movie, and I was like, "Well, that's weird. Like, why aren't there? Like, why? Where are the previews and stuff?" So then we rewound it, and we found out that there was a red band trailer for another movie, which I can't remember what it is now off the top of my head, but that that trailer had boobs in it. <laughs> and that's something that escaped even though me. The, even though the movie has a boob in it. Yeah, I escaped me for years because I only heard of Red Band trailers for some reason when Rambo 4, yeah. it's a Red Band trailer. I was like, what's a Red Band trailer? Does it have to do with Rambo? Red Rambo? Yeah, I mean, I think at the time I was on like, ooh, it's Yeah, red. but I guess it's because, no, but I mean, I didn't know that they would even make trailers. I guess because it's, it's technically on a horror movie, but yeah. this is a big budget horror movie. I wouldn't even know that when you get the VHS copy, the trailer before wouldn't be G or whatever. Yeah. I guess there'd be X or R-rated trailers. But, uh, so I've always had a huge amount of nostalgia for this movie. Um, and I think that was the pre- reason you and I decided doing this. Like, hey, we both have this huge nostalgia for this movie. Yeah, it was like out of, you know, honestly, like I, this is probably, I have probably the most nostalgia for this movie than any other anthology movie. Yeah. Like I, like I talked about in Creepshow, like I didn't, in our Creepshow episode, like I didn't really grow up watching Creepshow. So I don't, I, I love it now, but I didn't have the, I don't have the same kind of nostalgia for it that a lot of people of our generation and the generation before ours have for it. Um, so in a way, like this was my creep show. You know, like this was the one that like I grew up watching. Yeah. I mean, I, and it wasn't like I watched it all the time, but I've always had a huge amount of uh, nostalgia for it. It's always like images from it have always been like implanted on my yeah. brain, whether it's um, the, you know, the lover's vow stuff from the lover's vow story uh, or uh, the mummy, you know, like it's, it's got, it runs the gamut. It's only three stories, but I think with a wraparound one. Of, yeah. With a wraparound. But I think one of the things I've always appreciated, appreciated about it. And it's probably, it's definitely not something I've ever really thought about on a conscious level. But looking back, I think I always liked that each story is very different. Yeah. Um, and they each do have like their own kind of vibe. And so each one has always kind of stuck in my mind ever since I saw it. Sure. In 1990. Um, and then I'd seen it a couple times throughout the years. And then when I interviewed, uh, 
John Harrison last year. I think it was last year for scored to death. The podcast, I revisited it um, really for the first time in a long time. And I just loved it. Yeah. I just loved it all over again, especially the lover's vow story. Like to me, like, and we'll get into the more specifics of it, but I just love that story. Yeah. I love the, the, the way it looks. I love John Harrison's music for that one. I love the story, like that it's this romantic fairy tale. And so, it's just like reaffirmed that viewing like reaffirmed in my mind like man i really love this movie like i'm not saying it's flawless and i can see that some people might not it might not speak to some people the way it speaks to me but sure as a movie that i grew up with it's there's always the danger that you're going to revisit it and you're like eh, yeah <laughs> yeah that, that's definitely something you can worry about and <laughs> And but revisiting this one uh, last year and now again uh, tonight, it just was like, yeah. I mean, it has, you know, it's very 1990, and I love that about it. You know, because that's that's the nostalgic aspect of it. Um, but I think you know, for the most part, I feel like it really holds up. Yeah, uh, it's weird, I guess, because we're since we were the right age when I when. For, for a number of years, I recognized the imagery from, like, say, the trailer, since I s- probably saw that a lot more than I remember the actual stories of the movie. I didn't remember the first story as much as I remembered the, the last two. Yeah. Or even the wraparound. But, like, I can tell you where I was sitting in my house growing up and seeing, like I said, that Christian Slater shot. Like, I'm sitting on my dad's leather chair sure. in front of the TV room looking, you know, like, it's so iconic to me. And it's, you know, and it also, when you're young and you see, like, a level of, Tales from the Dark Side, the movie. It's like you already have that association yeah. of the show. So it's even that much more scarier because, I, like I said, this show was scary for me. It wasn't like Twilight Zones were great. Um, you know, there was a Hammer, uh, also a Hammer, English Hammer anthology series from the late 70s that played or the other shows. But they would sometimes delve into sci-fi or other shows. Sure. Night Gallery, I don't think, was in syndication when I was very little. I didn't discover that until maybe my teens or early adolescence. So... When you had a straight show like Tales from the Dark Side that was just horror 95 to 99% of the time, that was scary. You know, and this, like I said, this was right before, at least for me, for Tales from the Crypt coming out, the show. Sure. You know, I probably hadn't seen the, the, the original movie yet until. Yeah. So it's like this added a level of like, oh my gosh, this is going to be a freaking scary movie. Yeah. And you're right. There's the iconic imagery, especially for me, I think I most identify with the second story, the one with... Um, David Johansson about the cat like that I revisiting revisiting you now <laughs> it, it I find it to be you know um, that one hits home for me the most even though yeah for years I thought the lover's vow one was the one I really love which I still do but yeah, it's like yeah. you know just coming back it's so well it's really hard as a, if you see this when you're like 11 10 11 years old it's you'll never get like the imagery of like the ass end of a cat sticking out of a guy's mouth yeah. out of your head. <laughs> yeah, or, or a real cat coming out of a, a yeah. mouth, you know? Oh, definitely. Or, or with James Remar, that story, you know, I remember, again, I, don't, I didn't remember so much the first story, but I remember the plot gist of the second story with the hitman trying to yeah. kill the cat, and I remember the gargoyle coming down in an alley and sparing his life. I yeah, rem- yeah. You know, and that being based off a Japanese folklore uh, story. Yeah. Uh, that maybe because it's a tale as old as time that it's simple so it was simple enough for me to understand the idea of what was on the line and i sure. knew wait Ray Dong chong from 
Commando, because I, I knew Commando at such a very young age. I'm like, oh, look who that is, you know? And then I don't maybe know if I made the association of James Remar for Ajax from the Warriors yet, yeah. but, you know, so it's like, and then I had forgotten the wraparound with Deborah Harry. Oh, yeah. You know, so <clears throat> that to me, you know, it, when you watch it now, it's a little rushed, but I feel like they just want to get into the story and get it done, you know? Yeah, yeah. And it's interesting that, it, you're right, it's only three stories. It is very it's a very quick movie but at the same time each story takes its time which is good and i don't at any time find myself looking at the clock you know but uh you would think you would be because there's only three stories here where some of these usually average at least four to five stories plus a uh an epilogue and a prologue yeah you know so it's nice that you have these stories that are able to you don't have too much time with a setup it almost feels like you could have broken them up into television episodes sure you know because they are like 20 minutes yeah long kind of and um as you said here that they they wanted to do a creep show series but then was it a rights issue that they couldn't actually use the creep show name yeah i believe that that must have been it or but also they would have just done it warner or whoever owned it at the time was saying like we were interested in doing a series but we just kind of want to do it leave the tropes of the ec comics aside and let's just do a straight horror series Mm -hmm. and then when they get, get they get this going they do have people like John Harrison come or, or Stephen King, Romero, Savini. You have, you know, Fritz Reaver, uh, Keenan Wynn. So I bet you if we check the whole four seasons, I bet you we're going to have some pretty heavy hitters. So it does feel like you're getting, like, certainly the end of that Keenan, uh, the, this Tom, not Tom Savini, the John Harrison episode I just described, the million dollars, when George Petrie comes back from the dead and Keenan wins there, to me it's very much like the... Uh, um, the the Leslie Nielsen episode where he's sure. you know he's got a handgun he's like what's going on and then he f- of course sees his friend he shoots the it's very much you know, you could it's like suddenly you're like oh Keenan Wynn could have played Leslie Nielsen in the movie or Leslie Nielsen could be playing this part here so you get all these you know so you feel like the esteem of getting these big well brand named actors doing a horror TV show sure you know even though it plays late at night or whatever you know uh. In terms of the movie, there's this rumor that has always that has been out there for many years, where uh, this was originally intended to be Creepshow three. And according to John Harrison, I asked him about this, and he said, "John Harrison said John Harrison." He said, "Yes, Blake. <laughs> Let me ask you a question. Uh, you think God came down from heaven <laughs> and made Creepshow three and the Tales from the Dark Side?" Of the I movie? don't follow you. Um. That was never the case, as far as he knows. And it's funny because I have a huge affinity for Creepshow 2. Um, and that also is only three stories, if I remember correctly. Yeah. So it's funny that we've we've jumped over that. Yeah. And we're doing this because, yeah, <laughs> because I didn't realize when we researched Creepshow, the connection of Creepshow 2, we talked about that story the hitchhiker one yes, might which have were which i don't know if he ever had confirmation but we're assuming that that's what happened they were saying that they it makes sense it makes logical sense that they were going to replace was a bug the bug uh, one with eg marshall and so steven the hitchhiker one and so stephen king was coming up with a new story about a hitchhiker yeah and then they ended up doing the eg marshall bug story and so we assume that that hitchhiker story then got put into kept it. well too. it did but we're we're assuming, assuming that it's the same that, story yeah and then also here isn't there wasn't there a, a, a skit that was written that might have been for creep show too well like, yeah because what happens is but then they end up doing something else or they run out of money for creep show too they intend to uh do five stories again so right now in creep show too you got the 
the the oh, freaky raft one when they're in the lake and there's like a blob in the lake. You have the second one, which is George Kennedy and his wife, where they've got the uh, they've got like a general store and marauders come and mess with them, and they have the um, wooden Indian outside that yeah. kind of g- comes alive and gets revenge for them. And then I think the last story is the hitchhiker story, where it's a hit and run. And the woman's running away from this guy. She's run down. And then I don't remember. Oh, yeah, there is wraparounds. And it's Savini dressed, dressed as a crazy paper man, I think. Well, there's a lot of, there's got to be, an, isn't there a lot of animation in that, in the Coop Show too? I don't remember. There, there very well might be. But Tom Savini's like this, it's like the news truck comes. And it's, he's like this, he looks like a kind of a. I don't know, he looks like a, like a gremlin kind of a thing. And yeah. he's throwing the newspapers out, and it's like the Creepshow comic. And then I think that's how it begins and ends. For, yeah. If I remember, I haven't seen it in 20 years. But So those are the three stories with a wraparound. But so you're saying there initially there originally was, five. was five. And apparently what the concept was, uh, King... The stories are by King, but Romero adapted the stories into the screenplay. And apparently the original screenplay has five stories. Um... And for budgetary reasons, uh, Richard Rubenstein cut the, cut the movie down to three stories. Now, the two stories that um, didn't get used, we assume that Richard Rubenstein held on to the, the rights to them. So he r- pulls uh, The Cat from Hell. Yeah, okay. Which uh, was actually, a, in, in Creepshow 2, fi- the, there was five stories. Two of them had been published. Two Two of the King stories had been published for Creepshow 2, and it was The Cat from Hell, uh, which was published in a 1977 issue of Cavalier. Um, and then The Raft had been published. But the rest were just sketches that Stephen King had come up with, and then Romero kind of adapted those ideas and uh, and The Raft into the stories of Creepshow 2. Or even took the what was left on the floor from Creepshow 1, the hitchhiker, and yeah. hey, we'll use that here. And uh, so they use basically Romero's script for the Cat from Hell in Tales from the Dark Side, the movie. And the one story that still has yet to be put into a movie is a, apparently a story called Pitfall, which is a revenge story around that revolves around a bowling league. Whew. <laughs> um, but the idea that this has become that this was originally supposed to be Creepshow three because they made a Creepshow three in the two thousands, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, and I and th- it's not well received. Yeah, I haven't seen it, so I can't. I judge. haven't seen it either. A good friend of mine who was a horror guy watched it when it came out. And he's, his quotes were it was god awful, and that's why I never went and saw it. And I think where and there was no association to any of them too. They just took the name right. There's no Stephen King, or I don't think, or Romero association. I don't think so. Um, I would assume Rubenstein might have something to do with it. Yeah. Uh, or at least, you know, certainly got paid. Sure. <laughs> uh, but I th- where this rumor that Creep sh- it was that Tales from the Dark Side was supposed to be Creepshow 3, I think stems from, I believe, around the time that the actual Creepshow 3 came out, you know, people probably asked Savini about it. And Savini was like, you know, if you want to see the great, if you want to see like the real Creepshow 3, Go watch Tales from the Dark Side, meaning more like the spirit. Yeah, this is the spirit sequel or of that. of it, you know, because it had, you know, it was done by Rubenstein and and uh, John Harrison had directed it, and I, and so the I think the combination of the fact that uh, Cat from Hell was a was a, a holdover from Creepshow Two, and the fact that Savini said that. Uh, I think has perpetuated this 
this myth online that you see all over, even on the Wikipedia page and stuff, that this was supposed to be Creepshow 3. That was never the case. Uh, um, Richard Rubenstein, from John Harrison's understanding, really, the show was popular. Now, he's he's the producer, for everyone who forgot, he worked on the first creep show as the he, producer. He produced Dawn of the Dead. The first thing he and Romero <clears throat> worked on together was Martin. Yeah. He produced Martin. Uh, he created Laurel Productions, or uh, which is where Romero then made, you know, Dawn of the Dead, uh, Night Riders, uh, Creep Show. And apparently he parts ways with them in the mid eighties. Um, but, uh, so Richard Rubenstein is the producer. He's the one that we talked about last week where, you know, he ends up doing the stand. Yeah. He did all the Stephen King TV movies of the late eighties and nineties. Tommy knockers maybe. Yeah. Yeah. And apparently, um, Romero, what it's, it's funny. Too, I don't mean to cut you off, but it's funny too because you go back to our anniversary Superman episode. We were talking about the two, uh, I forgot the two guys that that, that funded that movie. They went on to do oh, yeah. Cat's Eye, Stephen King anthology here, and they also ended to do the TV movie of uh, Sometimes They Come Back, Stephen King, and they did another <laughs> Sometimes They Come Back Again, which might have been just yeah. straight to DVD, uh, straight to video. But it's so funny that these are all. It's all this, you know, they're all related, really. Yeah. You know? Uh, apparently, there's uh, allegedly uh, Romero in an interview had said that he was actually supposed to do the stand for the television movie and then for some reason didn't end up doing it. And he was supposed to direct Pet Cemetery, but there was a schedule. Oh, that might have been the one that But they- there was a scheduling conflict with uh, Monkey Shines. Ah. Uh-huh. And part of, I think, what gets Tales from the Dark Side made is that Stephen King connection with the Cat from Hell story because it was Laurel Entertainment that made Pet Cemetery. So like 88, 89, they make Pet Cemetery, and Pet Cemetery at the time was the most successful uh, financially, box office-wise, Stephen King adaption up to that More point. More than The Shining. Yeah. Or Christine or... That's what those. they say, but there was yeah. probably inflation There's involved. a lot of work in there, too. I remember... Pet Cemetery being hugely successful when it came out. Yeah. And then as well, that's right around when Savini and Romero embark on remaking Night of the Living Dead, which is 1990. And then they have a conflict of interest at the time because Romero isn't there to back Savini up because Romero is doing the dark half yeah. at the time. So they were quite busy at this time. And then this is happening uh, the same year or right or all around the same time. The three of them are quite busy. And then Savini, it, what is it? It's KMB? KMB, yeah. They do the uh, special effects for for Tales from the Dark Side, the movie, and they might even do Night of the Living Dead, the remake, as well. They probably worked on it, whether they did it as KMB, and of course, KMB, we're talking about um, Robert Kurtzman, Greg Nicotero, and Howard Berger, and those guys were all... Day of the Dead. Day of the Dead guys. Yeah. We've, we've talked about how Nicotero met uh, <laughs> Romero in Italy when he was 17 years old. Um, Serendipitously in a cafe, yeah. They yeah. work in... At least Howard, I believe Howard Berger and Nicotero work on Day of the Dead. They're kind of protégés of Tom Savini's. I'm not positive about Kurtzman, but then those three guys then go on to work on Evil Dead 2. Yeah. <clears throat> which we covered over the summer. Yeah. So eventually they're working on all these films as special effects what's that? That's 87 maybe? 86, I believe. 86? And uh, then when they come up and they do, or part of them do, the remake of Night of the Living Dead, I used to say for years, uh, Dion Bai used to declare that was the best zombie effects I had seen up until probably 
in my personal opinion, until the remake of Dawn of the Dead or yeah. into the... Uh, I mean, I, I haven't been as impressed with The Walking Dead as everyone has. I think they're okay, but yeah, like yeah. the... At the time when you're you know, when you're used to seeing like Day of the Dead was good, but if you're used to seeing like the zombies from Dawn of the Dead or that kind of a thing, that fair, and then when you see sure. what they deliver in uh, Night with the cloudy eyes, it's yeah. just frightening. I mean, I'm like I'm not absolutely positive. I'm traumatized. I like I don't believe that they did it as their company. Yeah, I can only assume that they worked on it because of their connections with Savini. Because even in the early days when they started K and B, which is the first movie they did, was The Intruder. Which was directed by Scott Spiegel. So there's that. Spiegel. There's that. Uh, Scott Spiegel co-wrote Evil Dead Two, and he was part of that group, that Detroit group of guys that made the, the movies old three one three. Detroit. <laughs> Romero, uh, 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 Ramey, Ramey. Uh, Campbell, Rob Tapper, Scott Spiegel made Intruder, and um, then they do the horror show, and then as K and B, and then they also do uh, Elm Street Five and Halloween Five. All is K and B, but in between all those movies, they're working on other movies as special effects artists. Sure. Oh, so they made even do. though it's not their movie yeah. per se, but they're working on other movies at all that time. So I can only assume that if, if they if they didn't do it as K and B, that they still worked on because Savini's directing. And I mean, that'd be a great episode to do one day because that thing had such a big opus that it's one of those stories that didn't get done where they had every zombie. Well, for the most part, the principles were all homages to other famous zombies. There was a bub zombie. There was a zombie from the guy on the boat at the beginning of Fulci zombie. Yeah. They all had different people that you point and say, hey, I recognize that guy. I recognize that guy, which all kind of fell on the cutting room floor when I think the uh, the studio kind of took control from Savini. And then when Savini went to go get Romero's backing, Romero was knee deep in the dark half sure. and said, I can't help you. And then that's... They had they, they weren't talking for a couple of years, uh, Savini yeah. and Romero because of that incident. But that's all water on the bridge long ago. But uh, you know Romero did things. You know it's a shame that that happened because, you know Romero did things, just to help out people. Like he wrote he wasn't going to direct Creepshow sh- two, but he's like I'll write Creepshow two so that Mike Gornick, who was the cinematographer of Creepshow and Martin and Dawn of the Dead so that like he can direct it and he get his first directing credit. And even though there was some legal issues as to why they did Night of the Living Dead because it's like if you don't do it now anybody can do it. The remake. Yeah, the remake, the 1990 remake. Um, oh, so that's th- interesting. So there was like, he did that for that reason. You know, just to one of those things of like to try to get the rights back or something because well, they, it, cause it had a big thing. I mean, and I think we talked probably talk about a little bit of it in, in our Dawn of the Dead episode where it was basically public domain. The yeah. movie, the first, the original movie. Because they copywritten it was like Night of the Flesh Eaters on yeah. the print, but then the last minute they changed it to Night of the Living Dead, but then they forgot to re register the patent or you the know, copyright. And they, and they end up cutting the copyright symbol. Yeah, out of the movie. So that's when you get in by the, putting the new title in. So you get for the. So it went out uncopywritten. So then for years you get. That's how everyone's able to make Return of Living Dead and all the Living Dead. Um, uh, but then yeah, when they went for whatever reason, got them to try to remake that. They went balls in with you know Romero's gonna him and Savini did this amazing yeah. you know, script and we're gonna do this and we're gonna update the but it was a lot also of the tropes to like. Yeah. You know, helped Savini get like a f- his first feature length, his first feature. Yeah. And what credit. year is Two Evil Eyes? Uh, I'm going to say 92 or 3. Okay. Because cause Savini does the effects in that and appears as a cameo in that. And that has Romero and, and yeah. Argento. So they must be not arguing at the time after that. 
Yeah, you know, it because could be I remember as as ninety four, but for some reason ninety two stuck is, is in my head. And I feel like, um, for the most part, that flopped the nineteen ninety um, uh, Night of the Living Dead remake. I remember seeing trailers for it, and then even on the back of comic books, the comic books I'm reading at the time, you turn it over, and on the back cover, you'd see there's that very uh, uh, iconic poster of the big big hill and then the house at the top of the hill with lights on and you see people walking up to it bodies and it's not living yeah. dead and that even terrified me at the time interesting it's 1990 yeah i thought it was 1990 so he d- it does it's so maybe this time so that's so you think about then what what that's a this is a busy year so that would i guess coincide with if they don't speak for a couple of years because yeah. i thought when we met savini in 97 or 98 when we went to the fangora convention those times i thought they weren't speaking at the time, or we were just like, you know, um, yeah, I don't know, you I know. Mean, or were certainly, we when the DV, when the DVD commentaries come around, I mean, they're speaking again. No, no, yeah, they, 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 they were, them. and then they they do everything together. I mean, they're back for doing all the kind of stuff. So when this movie Tales from the Dark Side, the movie comes together, they end up bringing then the stories from the leftover Creep Show too, and uh, they pull a story from. Uh, Arthur Conan Doyle. Yeah. So I think even in the credits it says inspired by. Yeah, because it's funny because if you look at, I think there's a, there's a Bram Stoker's Mummy movie that was made some years ago that's based off a Bram Stoker story. But then there, I thought there was an Sir Arthur Conan Doyle story that was mummy-ish, that was a little more iconic that, that was made. But maybe I'm just getting that confused with yeah. the Bram Stoker movie with Luke Gossett Jr. Maybe. <laughs> maybe. Yeah. Um. So they end up doing. Uh, Lot 249, which yep. is based on a short story by Arthur Conan Doyle and adapted by Michael McDowell. And uh, Michael McDowell, it's, I mean, you know, he, when you watch the trailer for this. And like you said, he's the guy that wrote a lot of the series episodes. Oh, he, well, yeah. you said that. <laughs> no, I said I said that he adapted the King thing, and then you said he ends up writing. I thought you said Well, uh, he's best known. Oh, you said the movie. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. He ends up, he's best known for the guy that wrote Beetlejuice. Yes. Well, that's what he's... They say that in the trailer. They, <laughs> what brought you Beetlejuice? Well, that, that's the funny thing is the trailer. It's like, King Romero. Yeah. I mean, Arthur Conan Doyle. <laughs> Arthur Doyle. Like, what? And the guy that wrote Beetlejuice. And you're like, whoa. <laughs> and then, because I, I thought, you know, I didn't, because we haven't researched enough, but doesn't Beetlejuice seem so much like a Tim Burton thought of? Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. that seems like it, that came right out of Tim Burton's mind, but no. Uh, and then, uh, like we said, Cat It From Hell was... Uh, Written by George A. Romero, but based on a short story by Stephen King. And then Lover's Vow was written by Michael McDowell, uh, but based on a uh, Japanese folklore of kind of the, spe- the snow spirit, uh, Yuki Ono. And I, Yuki Ona. And I have a, actually a lot of notes on that, but I'll save that for when we get around to talking about that episode specifically. Yeah, because I'd like to also talk about the Yuki Ona and how freaking terrifying it <laughs> seems to be. Um, Let's see. So, uh, well, the beginning of it, you have yeah. I forgot. I felt, like I, was, I felt like I was on a, tr- a trend. Michael, uh, McD- we're talking about Michael McDowell penning the writing the script. Well, even before that, before we got Stephen off on King the, on the tangent, d- Romero t- about the doing the Stephen King, and then we're talking about the stories that they left on the cutting room floor. Well, anyway, oh, uh, <laughs> so th- but the idea was that uh, I mean, maybe maybe I'm just repeating myself, but. The idea was that it was always intended to be Tales from the Dark Side, the movie, um, because the show was a popular prop- property. I mean, even though it even had, in syndication, even though you know by eighty eight, 
you know, it was the last season they started making episodes. They pr- in, as syndication, it probably was still running. Yeah. Past 88. That's when I saw it. And uh, Rubenstein and Laurel uh, Productions or Entertainment had a success with Pet Cemetery. Yeah. So they were coming off of their 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 biggest movie ever at the time. A king property. And But the, big, m- the most successful movie they had ever made, uh, the company, Laurel Entertainment... Um, it was also, like I said, it was at, for the time, it was the highest grossing Stephen King adaptation. Which is interesting. And that, and apparently the book at the time when it was released was the highest selling uh, King book. I can believe that because I, 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 I'm not disputing you, but it's so odd to think that other of his movies didn't make as much money as Pet Cemetery. But I think you also have to take like inflation. Like you said, yeah. But mm-hmm. I can understand that. Pet Cemetery doing well because of the hype of look at all the shit he's written. By that yeah, time, yeah. he's got a dozen books out at least, and he's doing other things, and he's got his hands dipping. He he directs Maximum Overdrive in the 1988ish or 87 or 86 maybe even. Yeah. So if they're like saying in the next thing by you know because you got him everywhere, you got him on in print, you got him in movies, you got him on TV, you got him on we said audio with the mist, you know. So sure. by the time and then here's his new fucking book, and he's even writing under. Uh, uh, fake names, you know. As yeah. What's his face? <laughs> uh, running Man and uh, the other one. Uh, you know, I forget. I forget the name. He's you know, but but so you have him everywhere. He's writing so much stuff that he has to write them under a pseudonym, so he's not competing with himself. Yeah. In the, in the market. And you look about that. I mean, look, you got uh, rough chronologically. The Shining's nineteen eighty. Uh, Christine is eighty three. Um, Cat's Eyes eighty five. Uh, Running Man's 87, Maximum Overdrive's 86, 87. I'm sure I'm missing something in around that time. And then you hit the late 80s. Sure. You yeah, have all those TV movies. Silver Bullet, 85. Silver Bullet, 85. Um, uh, and I, I don't remember, uh, like, Firestarter. Firestarter's 85 as well. You're right. So, And that's, that's the I think, the assumed name. I think that's, uh, I think it's Firestarter and Running Man. So you have, basically, my point is, you have him... There's a movie every day coming out of him, you know, uh, theatrically or on TV and TV movies. So yeah. people are very well aware of who the hell Stephen King is. So I think Parsh, probably partial, Parsh, 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 the uh, <laughs> <laughs> the inspiration for uh, to do Tales from the Dark Side was one, the success of the show, and two, Rubenstein knew he had this. Stephen King's Romero story sitting in, in his, his back, back. pocket. <laughs> it's in his back pocket. In that mother's back pocket. Yeah, and he's going, like, I'm going to whip that I'm baby gonna, out. Whoa, excuse me, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, so they embark on uh, Tales from the Dark Side, the movie. They they call in uh, John Harrison, who had, uh, as we stated, was a long-time associate of Romero and Richard Rubenstein. And he was a staple of the television show. And also we should mention that Romero did supposedly write the opening thing and closing thing of the TV show, which is scary as hell. You know, the little little monologue that the gentleman oh. gives. Okay, like, yeah. Supposedly R- Romero wrote that too, you know. Man lives in the sunlit world that he believes to be reality, but there is an unseen by most, an underworld, a place that is not just real, but not as brightly lit, a dark side. And then I love at the end, there's also the, the outro, which I will read to bore everybody <laughs> too, that says, the dark side is always there, waiting for us to enter, waiting for, waiting to enter us. Until next time, try to enjoy the daylight. So it's almost like a little, you know, <laughs> it's a little just like, enjoy what you have. So uh, Romero, it's great that he's, he's knee deep in all this. Yeah. Completely derailed Blake and what he was talking about. Uh, Romero ends up, other than 
having penned the script for uh, The Cat from Hell, he ends up not having anything to do with this movie. Um, in fact, well, he was pretty I, busy that year. <laughs> he was pretty busy, but I also gather that he's probably not happy about it because I don't think they, they told him. I don't think they told him that. I don't think Rubenstein told him that he they were going to use The Cat from Hell. Oh, really? I don't think he ever got any more money from it. Well, uh, you know, it's one, you wonder if he just gets flustered. And we can't ask him because sadly he's passed away. But like you think how much he's got going on that year, and there is some l- little um, disagreement with Savini about the remake of Night. So it's like I wonder if there's just so much going on that it's just like yeah, there's that and like I, I you know I think too many irons in the really fire. like Monkey Shines and then Dark Half I think are like his first real explorations into working in a studio system, which I don't think he... Which you alluded to last week on Creep Show. You said he did a couple studio pictures that he wasn't happy with, and then I was thinking to myself as I listened to the podcast a half a dozen times to edit it, which one you specifically meant. So you think it was Monkey Shines and the Dark Half kind of... Well, I know the Dark Half had a lot of problems, part, part of which from is my understanding that there were medical issues from on Romero's end. And... Like that's why maybe he's not there for Savini the same year to do Night of Living Dead. Um, it's something like Chris Young, who scored the Dark Half, uh, talks about it. Hellraiser fame from Hellraiser fame talks about it in the book "Scored to Death: Conversations with Some of Horror's Greatest Composers," and he says something like George Romero had gone deaf or something like that, and he ended up not like he's not around for any post production in the Dark Half. The effects never get finished. Chris's score never gets finished and it sits like in post-production hell for like a year or two until whoever the producers just pull together, cobble something together. They take Chris's cues from earlier in the movie and edit them into the later in the movie. Chris didn't end up, wasn't given the opportunity to finish the score. Romero wasn't around. Like I said, in the book, I believe your book, my book, Chris Young, uh, kind of implies that Romero was having a medical issue and that's why he couldn't complete it. But I think there was also just a lot of creative differences. Um, Romero had successfully stayed out of the studio system for basically his whole career uh, in the traditional sense. We talk about that in creep shows, so I don't want to go through it again, but I, I think when he finally does start to do some, and dark half of course is based on a Stephen King uh, book, which is about his alter ego it's a book. It's a story about him Bain, having maybe an alter ego. Maybe there's, there's the alter ego. I don't that he, know. This the, is the, the digital the, age. We could look yeah, it we up. Sh- yeah, but we're not going <laughs> to. But I, I think it's a good interesting point to now start bringing into the fact that for your book, Score to Death, Conversations with Some of Horror, horror Movies. <laughs> horror's <laughs> Greatest Composers. Thank you. Um, that you have firsthand knowledge of a lot of this. So that that's stuff that we can glean into this podcast, which makes it very insightful for our listeners. Yes. I think that you've found how, how many people serendipitously have you, you know, you've, you said you've did, uh, you interviewed uh, John Harrison, John the director. Harrison's on the podcast yep. and John Harrison's going to be in the next book, which is coming out next year. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, even though it's this, it's a, the, the, you know, the show and this, and the book and the, the, the score to death podcast are about music because I had the opportunity to talk to somebody who also directs, I actually talked to him a lot about uh, directing. So, uh, yeah, I, I definitely, I went back and I listened to what I talked to John about. How long ago were those uh, those appear? That was, uh, I don't know, about a year ago. Yeah. I think it was, maybe John Harrison's episode was last summer. Okay. Uh, but Harrison talks about how with what was kind of his intention 
with Romero, but as a composer on Creepshow, the idea of doing the music was to give each episode of Creepshow their kind of own musical identity. So that, you know, each story has its own feel because each, each story is dealing with different different subject matter each one's kind of shot semi uh, somewhat differently but as a director harrison takes that notion into tales from the dark side the movie and i think even maybe even more successfully in terms of really having each story have their own identity uh both visually he works with a cinematographer named robert draper draper and uh i think between the two of them they do a fantastic job of having each story visually kind of have their own look he ends up using three different composers for each of the stories uh lot 249 he uses a composer named jim manzi who comes from a rock background and and played in some uh rock bands in the in the late 70s and early 80s but had a, a big affinity for for classical music and so with like lot 249 it's coming from an old story and the idea of the mummy and stuff so you know, Harrison talks about how for that he wanted, you know, something like an old, like a more of a serial Indiana Jones feel. And obviously they don't have that kind of budget, but uh, that's kind of how he wanted to approach the music and the vibe for Lot 249. And Jim Manzi, who did the score for that, went on to score uh, From a Whisper to a Scream, which is another Vincent anthology Price, movie yeah. with uh, Vincent Price kind of as the host of that, like the wraparound uh, person in that. Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3 Leatherface this is a pretty good one both those yeah it's kind of it's my favorite movie yeah Texas Chainsaw Massacre movie other than the original both of those are directed by the same guy uh, scary pumpkin <laughs> a pumpkin head 2 stepfather 2 so he goes on to do some some more horror stuff with uh, Cat from Hell uh, you know visually speaking he uh, Harrison and Draper kind of give that story much more like monochromatic cold yeah look uh and the music kind of is like atonal and kind of works with that as well and uh that's that music is by a composer named Chaz Jenkel who also comes out of more of a rock band thing and, and didn't score a ton of stuff but one thing that he did score that some of our listeners would know is making Mr. Right with John uh Malkovich. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> she makes like the robot, John Malkovich. And that's something we can get back to how the visual style. That yeah, I'm phenomenal. just doing a yeah, big, sure. overview. just a, an overview, and then we'll dive in. Uh, we'll dive into the stories, and then with Lover's Vow, you know, that's very contemporary, urban New York City. You know, to me, that feels much more like uh, romantic. Well, yeah, romantic, but like the way it's shot is, uh, you know. Uh, and it feels much more. It feels much more contemporary. Like they really captured like that, almost like. To me, it's very like the Miami Crow, New York City. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Leon. You know, like, you know, or like Tony Scott. You know, with the with the with the blues and, um, and then Harrison scored that one himself, and I just love that the score for uh, Lovers Vow. Yeah, Harrison is such an under. Some would say overrated because he he really only did three things. Who who did the score? Uh, who did the theme? Donald Rubin's theme. Who okay. did the theme from the original show? He came in and kind of rearranged the theme for the movie, and then kind of did the score elements 
for the wraparound, which might only actually be the the opening and then the closing when she gets tossed into the oven. And then um, I don't know who wrote. I can't find out who wrote the actual wraparound stuff. Uh, because then so. You're saying that the the initial theme from the movie it it'll be reminiscent for people as uh, of like a like a steroid version of the show. Yeah, theme. it opens with just like the yeah. the, the theme, <laughs> and then it yeah. goes into like a big more orchestrated. Because when I heard the theme, I was thinking like, is this something that have you profiled that on cuts from the crypt, or these are like things you'd be playing and discussing? I mean, no, but I might now. Yeah, now that we've revisited. Yeah, because it. it's it's such a fascinating like it's like niche for people. It's, or you know, it certainly loses. The original theme loses its eeriness. Yeah, sure. Uh, but I guess they just wanted it to be bigger because it's more. You could do a whole episode on like because the scary, movie. you know, like the uh, Friday the Thirteenth series. That's yeah. the, how creepy that opening was, and I'm sure there's another one we're forgetting. But my point was, Harrison only did like Creepshow, Day of the Dead, and this composing, composing wise, yeah. and a few episodes of uh, the show. Yeah. Um, so, but he directs. He directs the show. He directs yeah, episodes of the but show. But I think as a composer, I will see. Some people might argue that he's overrated because he didn't really do much, and he does get talked about a lot. But I think he's kind of underrated because he didn't really do that much. But everything he did was great. Yeah, you know, like I love Day of the Dead has become one of my favorite horror movies. I scores. have to go back and re- revisit that score. I know it, but even maybe even one of my favorite scores, not just horror movie scores. Sure. It's become that. His stuff for Creepshow, which we talked about last time, is great. Yeah, it's and great. His, and his stuff for this, even though it's only that one segment, it's just gorgeous. Yeah. I mean, and it, it's, yeah, it's totally fucking 80s, but Yeah, you wonderful. get past that. Like you said, it's very Miami Vice of the era. It's um, nice. You know, it's all synth, yeah. but it's he really captures the rom- the romance of that story really well. Um, and, uh, and we just talked about the music, so let's dive into each of the stories. Um, if Unless there's something else you want to talk about. Other than that, it is shot in Dion's neck of the woods. Well, that was funny because I hadn't seen it in so many years, and then the opening shot... Yeah, Dion, Dion starts like, hitting me on the I shoulder. Like, Wait, look at this. Do you recognize <laughs> the place? I don't recognize it. It's Bronxville, where I live. Well, I'm like telling everybody where I live. But it's funny because... When you see Deborah Harry get out of the come out of the, the the store and she crosses that street and then her Jeep is parked there, I'm usually double parked there because there's a, on that side of the street where the Jeep is, there's a place called Slave to the Grind. That's really, I don't know, like not legendary, but like people know from the area know that coffee shop has been around for years. So I get my coffee from there and I was like, hey, you know, I was like, holy crap! And it's late '80s, you know, Bronxville, and then they do a nice panning shot where you see her go down the street, which is like the the the. Uh, Actually, the the what do you call that the the, the one street or the the town street the whatever you call that yeah. uh, the, um, of of where I live and then you know when then you see the little montage of her driving around I was like I knew the church the church is on the corner going towards my house I'm like hey look at that you know and then you're trying to find out and it's a very rich area and uh, I own an apartment there so I'm not nearly as rich as all these people but it's a very affluent area and, uh, and so that's why you see like a lot of these rich houses so that's like a big um, uh, uh, thing that my wife and I love doing, uh, you know, is, is just driving around at night and looking at all the nice, beautiful houses that we'll never be able to own. <laughs> it's a f- fun pastime. But so it's it's amazing to see her come out of there. And also, what's the name of that um, that Kevin Bacon show from um, a couple years ago? The Happening, the Following, the Following, the uh, yeah, the one where he's the serial killers. Serial killer yeah, they shot with Poe. Yeah, they shot a bunch of that in Bronxville, and then Catch Me If You Can. The, he's from Bronxville, the author, but when they went to make the movie, Bronxville didn't want them to mention, so they 
had to put it in New Rochelle, which is the town over, New Row. So, because uh, I met that guy a couple of years ago, because now he's a security analyst, that guy. And he kind of, you, you hire him and he'll tell you what's wrong. He breaks into, you know. And I was yeah. like, hey, Bronx, what was it? Yeah, and he told me that story. But so, my neck of the woods, very funny, about, what is that, 25 minutes outside of town, uh, New York City. And then, uh, you know, you see Deborah Harry, who I met. Years ago, uh, 2003 maybe at my day job, she was doing a musical performance, so she was setting up. So I walked in while they were setting up, and she walked by me. And it's funny just to think, like, I was like, oh, like, oh look who that is. But it's, she's short. You know, I was a very, very <coughs> sh- shorter girl. So it was funny, her go by. I was like, oh, I know who she is. You know, and uh, you f- come to find out when she gets to the house and all, there's this little reveal, right? She gets to this really nice house, uh, very reminiscent of like, you know, Home Alone, that kind of a house. And she's getting ready to cook this big deal at this dinner party, this meal. And she opens the thing and it's, she's got a kid locked up. A in little Matthew Lawrence. Yeah. And little it, brother of Joey Lawrence. Whoa. <laughs> whoa. <laughs> and, uh, and I thought he looked familiar and. Well, he was the next, his, his next movie is Mrs. Doubtfire. I was going to say. So it's like, and then also. It's you come to find out is she a witch? You know you have this really interesting because that's always the well at least for I know the the generalized popular folklore of witches eat kids and all that kind of a yeah. thing. So well, it's definitely kind of it's the more and less a cannibalism so serial killer. <laughs> she's gonna prepare the kid for this meal or dinner party. This meal, this dinner party that they're having, and so there is this element that's. And where she has him locked up, it's very much like this old dungeon. Yeah, it's, it's not like she has him up like in a in a soup or like a kitchen cupboard. Yeah, you know. So I, I, it's like she's a beautiful witch, but it, it really harkens back to these cult movies you're being seen, like you know, Kill List or Hereditary or even Wicker Man, where it's like you know, little do we know she's. And then I, it's just interesting because she, she, you know, she's she gives him a book, I guess, and cookies to to yeah, read. Yeah, she's past the time while she's and she goes, "That's my shopping. favorite book growing up." And then she, he uh, starts. She, uh, she yeah, doesn't know any of the stories. Exactly. <laughs> so, so she's cooking dinner, and she's like, "I got to get you into the." You know, I'm trying to figure out your weight and how much to, how long I'm going to have to roast you for. Yeah. Sounds very Albert Fish serial killery. And then she's like, he's like trying to. It's it's almost very like a Grimm's fairy tale. Like, well, let me try to well, put yeah. you off. It's a little bit. Of, it's a little bit of a Hansel and Gretel. Yeah. And then Certainly. there's this little bit of like, uh, what is it, Arabian, like the Shahrazad story where. Um, Basically, this king uh, finds out his his wife wasn't faithful, so he has her executed. Yeah, and he decides I'm going to marry a virgin every day, and on every and then when I marry the new one, we're going to kill the old one. That way, she can never cheat on me. A little bluebeardy, and he does you know like for a thousand and one women, he does this for, and he finds um, this one woman, and they get married, and and then they're in the tent, the, the wedding night, and whatever, and she starts to tell him a story. And then the next morning comes around when she's supposed to be killed. And he's really interested in the story. He's like, finish the story. And so she's like, well, you know, I'll let you live for another day if you finish the story. So she tells the story. And then when that story's done, she starts telling another story. Is this in the Arabian Nights classical um, short story? Yeah, Maybe. I don't know. But so the idea is that... Because I recognize that's... Now you're bringing that up, the Arab kind of like, you know... She keeps telling us... She keeps telling stories. And so he keeps letting her live because he's fascinated with stories. And after like a thousand nights of her telling her stories, he falls in love with her. 
and then they get married. So this idea of like she's putting off her own execution by telling these stories, and that's kind of what's going on here. Yeah, is the boy keeps on like, oh wait, wait, wait. Like, there's another story. It's really great. It's very scary. Yeah. And in his stories, like it was his brother's paper route, but then his brother was sick, so he tried to sub for the paper for the kid. And that's how she got him, lured him into the house. And so we get this wraparound of uh, the kind of the device to get us into these stories that yeah. he's trying to stave off his own. Uh, uh, being cooked or killed, <laughs> being being or killed, gutted, right? <laughs> yeah, uh, by keeping by telling these, by reading her these stories. Yeah, and, and shout out to her, great. I love uh, what uh, Blondie. Yeah, uh, Deborah Harry actually thinks she's really awful in this. Yeah, um, but I think it's pro- I think it's probably partially that she's just not an actress. Yeah, and partially that like that story has a certain feel to it. Yeah. And that it is, that's like, it's like the hokiest part of this yeah, story because I, it is like this, you know, the the story, the idea itself is kind of uh, hokey. Yeah. So I think like she's playing into that. Yeah. And I certainly feel like it does seem a bit rushed. Like this was the last thing they needed to shoot. Yeah. Probably like we need something. Yeah. Hurry up. Shit. You know, <laughs> we'll, do, we'll do this in two days, you know. And then and I like the setup of her, like, you know, when she's driving by the church and he's like, I'll see you at church on Sunday. But then he gives a look like maybe he knows what she's doing. Like yeah, it's a big fucking crazy going, goal. Maybe he's going to dinner. Yeah. So it's like that. I That scares me. That's like the Wicker Man shit where like, at the end, it's suddenly at the end of Hereditary or whatever. All these people are naked looking at you. It's like, you know, <laughs> what the fuck? In this, Spoiler. You know, well, I mean, you don't know what's going on, but it's like some all, everybody is in on it very scary but yeah i mean i think she's she's all right i didn't i didn't find it anything negative about her but uh i didn't realize that she was acting at the time she did she does have a bunch of movies to her yeah credit. well she had done video drone yeah uh in the early 80s and how, how how was she in that which i don't remember uh same you, you know, know doing her best not, she's she not has. an actress yeah you know but i mean I sometimes like, like david johansson in the, in the next one he's great i thought i mean for the most part yeah you I mean, know some people are just kind of natural at yeah it. so she they start this story and then we have the first one which is the the um arthur conan doyle lot, inspired lot 249 yeah which also looks like it's shot right around the neighborhood because there's kind of very older apartment buildings that were made around the 20s 30s that have that really, really nice art deco kind of a feel that are right around the center of the town where i live in and it looks like they could have oh, also there's sarah lawrence college where jj abrams went and a lot of other people went yeah and there's another college um uh, i forget the name of the damn thing but these kind of look like they dressed up like one of these fancy apartment buildings and just put a couple like Beta Alpha Omega. Yeah. You know, and then all of a sudden, hey, look, it's a college. You There's know? an article from uh, Fangoria Magazine at the time. I think it's issue 92, in case you want to go look it up. Uh, and, but it opens with like the writer of the article is going to visit the set and he's going to visit the set during one of the seeds from, from 249. And he talks about how like, it's in Yonkers. Yeah, it goes over so. there, which is interesting. Um, uh, and then, you, like you said, that feeling of wherever they shoot the areas of Bronx or wherever the hell they get to shoot, I do get a lot of that feeling of the uh, collegiate academic, uh, not Yale, but like the Harvard Ivy League kind of a school a la Indiana Jones. You yeah. know what I mean? You get that kind of a feel of even how they're dressed or how they're shooting the corridors. Yeah, I you mean, know? they do a good job. With uh, with little, with very little. Yeah, and you when you, you know, watch, it's not a big budget it's kinda, movie. It's kind of sparse. You know, when you look at the couple locations they have, and the you know they have the house and they have the stuff, and then the a couple hallways and the dorm room. You do, they are making do with uh, making do with little, but they're making it look grand and grandiose. Yeah, and uh, this is the story where I didn't remember the the logistics to. I only remember again, really, for the most part, that shot of him with the electric knife. 
Uh, yeah. So it's you get, kind of the most creep show ish. Yeah, and it's very yeah because it, it's you know there's a little bit of a revenge, just desserts type and vibe going on. It's also very EC Comics. Yeah, which is again very creep show. But yeah. yeah, you have I could see this story being in an EC Comics where you have Steve Buscemi is uh, which by the way. You know, when I later saw him in things like Reservoir Dogs, for me it was like, oh, it's the fucking guy from yeah, Reservoir Dogs. <laughs> no, it's the guy from Tales of the Dark Side. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, you're saying like you didn't really re- remember he was in it until later, but for me it was like, you know, like oh, that's the guy from the Mummy story of t- when I started to see when he started to pop up in yeah. a lot of things. It's funny you think about his trajectory where he's from Brooklyn and he was a firefighter for a little while, but in this, if you look at, he's born in 1957, I think. So by the time this comes out, he's close to 30, or he's he's in his early 30s, but he's playing, he c- could be a graduate student. Yeah, a graduate student in his mid to late 20s. graduate thesis. Yeah, and um, before this, he's in a movie called Heart from 1987, which was p- produced and written by our friend Randy Jurgensen, which also has Brad Davis and Francis Fisher, and it's the movie Brad Davis. I think it might be his last movie because he succumbed to AIDS, but he's very famous for, I think it's, what is it, Midnight Express is the, that movie. Mm-hmm. And then his brother is the cross-dresser who's in Cruising. But he was a very famous act- actor that fizzled out very quickly because he died at a very young age. But then Buscemi does odd bit work. He's Remember that movie that he's in, our professor, John Rubin? Yeah. Which I can't find the name of, but we saw, but I fell asleep while watching it in class. Well, but it was something like he's... We had a professor named... Uh, this is a very quick story because we, yeah. we don't have a whole lot of time. Uh, John Rubin was one of was our first teacher when we went to film school. and But he was very into like... Uh, experimental very avant-garde and avant-garde stuff and so he did a, a, a short where but the idea of the sh- it was like Steve Buscemi and a girl and then I think the on, in a boat like a rowboat and then the gr- I think the girl was like Alice Underwater I yeah think it was, might have been the name of it or yeah, something that like sounds that. correct and she f- goes into the water and then it becomes like this little adventure tale a la like Alice in Wonderland type thing but the idea was that he would project it. Ruben, the director. John Ruben would direct it, would project it onto a floating a, on a, onto floating screen, a barge, so with a screen. So the viewing experiences would you you would be on land watching it f- like float. Yeah. Bye. <laughs> yeah, he liked to do. He liked to add a physical aspect to like he had a very famous, which we can't get into now, the 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 Who story where he. Sh- he went to all their concerts and spliced together a very early music video and showed it to yeah. them. And then he showed us a couple of avant-garde videos of him doing stuff around that, you know. But he, the point of ours to bring him up was that he worked with Buscemi before he was really anybody. And then when I talked to Randy Jurgensen and, and did a little thing about Hart, he talks about how, you know, he was still very green, um, 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 Buscemi. And then to, to finish this conversation out, which is funny, is when I went to Italy back in 1994 or 5 on a, a high school trip and I met the legendary Warren Munson, mm-hmm. um, who is the captain from uh, Friday the 13th Part 6, Jason Live. Jason takes Manhattan. It's uh, 8, right? Yeah, what did I say? Part 6. 6, six, six is Jason Lives. Friday the 13th part 8 Jason Takes Manhattan I met him in Italy and I was like you look familiar he's like have you seen perhaps Jason Takes Manhattan I go you're the captain and we had this <laughs> so then that day we went to Pompeii and I, I stayed with him the entire day just chatting to him about movies and stuff and he said have you seen Executive Decision I'm in that recently I'm like no you know but he brings up oh, I worked with you recently with Steve Buscemi and his dead mother and that I had never heard of that and, and then I got exposed to these indie movies because to me I'd only seen Steve Buscemi as the guy in Reservoir Dog so it's very funny seeing you know um, 
these connections, but he's basically a nobody, and this is also Julianna Moore's first movie. Julianne Moore. Julianne Moore's first movie. Yeah, and she plays a real Yeah, bitch. real bitch. And I, <laughs> I saw her... She was in her green room once, and I walked in, and it was at the time where th- me and my friend's joke was that she was always like naked from the waist down in movies. She's like in shortcuts with no pants on. She's naked in Big Lebowski. She's also naked in a very oh, was she in Boogie Nights? She's naked, you know. So when I my the the joke became, I walked into the green room and says, "Hey, I love seeing you f- naked from the waist down in all the movies," but I didn't say that. But she was very nice, also shorter than me, and I was like, oh, you know, because you never really gauge height. Yeah. <laughs> for movies, but she seemed very nice. But this is her first movie here. And I guess, which I couldn't... I remember the story, but then when I went to look out for it, I didn't see it. They say she doesn't drive. And this is one of the only... This is what I heard, if this is true or not, that she had to drive in this movie, which I don't remember what parts you see her driving. And she said she had to drive like up an out, a, a driveway, and this was it was hard for her to... You know, she had to yeah. be behind a car. And, of course, Christian Slater. Who was blowing up at the time. And um, it's... I've tr- how he's younger than I with I don't know how old she is but he's younger than than uh, than Buscemi in this because I'd seen that I I brought up a couple times that Saturday after school movie that he's in uh, uh, the spooky uh, haunted house thing that he's in in the early eighties and he's young in that so but he was really coming to his own so he was to me was the most popular bill in all this and it was almost like when you see the trailer when he's at the very end after the credits or before the credits it's like they're holding out the and you're like holy crap look who it is you know and this to me is really a great kind of, uh, um, like you said, a come up. It's kind of a tale, or you know. And the uh, and the uh, the last lead in the movie is Robert Sedgwick, who is Kira Sedgwick's brother. Yeah, and to me, he looks like the actor from Stranger Things, the sheriff. But and, uh, yeah, he does kind of have that. But look. they have like they both have like the pronounced brow. Yeah, and how he talks. And I was like, is that him? But I was like, Dem- no, the the math wouldn't work on that. Uh, and when you get into it. Uh, this interesting story where it's kind of, I guess, since it's Arthur Conan Doyle, it's a very original story where they, you know, they open up this this mummy when they take him apart. To me, he looks, he has a very like a Jason Voorhees kind of a face. Yeah. You know, a la Friday the Thirteenth Part Seven when you and his mask comes off, and it's a great kind of come up its tale, like you said. Uh, where he very out of the classical Hammer Universal movies where you're having the mummy go do your bidding. You know, like we talked about when we did The Mummy a couple of years ago, The Hammer movie. Yeah. Uh, and that scares me, too, to think that there's some mummy walking around Bronxville at night when I'm walking my dog. This is our second mummy movie. Yeah, exa- it, it is technically our second mummy movie. And I think, like you said, this is very much in the style, for the most part, like an EC creep show kind of a story. This is our second Sipa Semi appearance, right? No, uh, I'm going to say second, but I don't, you know. Is there one that slipped in? Maybe there could Second be something. Second Christian Slater appearance. Can you f- remember what Star Trek Six? <laughs> Star Trek Six, <laughs> of course. Because when he was in Star Trek Six, I was when I first saw it, I was like, "Mom, it's Christian Slater. Dad, who's watching this with me? It's Christian Slater." Yeah. Um, and then I feel like was Julianne Moore in another movie? I don't know if we've covered a Julianne Moore movie. But yet. God bless her. She's gorgeous. I love her. Yeah. Um, Big fan of shortcuts, and she, uh, she goes on to make. Uh, I think she's in Universal Soldier. She's in Universal Soldier. She's bl- the, is she the romantic lead? I believe she is. Wow, my, to my recollection. It's, you know, we should do a Forgive podcast special. It's like Sharon Stone being Steven Seagal's life, wife and above the law. We, or you know, we should do those kind of movies where she's in the Alan Quartermain movies, or yeah. she's an Incubus, or Succubus, or what's the she's name of that? Deadly Blessing. De- that's the movie I'm talking about. Deadly Blessing. Um, so anyway, love this story, and it's 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 a great, interesting kind of a. You know, the come up it's where Yeah, basically like they wronged Steve Buscemi. Steve Buscemi uses the mummy's curse 
it's to confusing do his to get revenge because you think he's an asshole to begin with, but then you find out that maybe they've wronged him because yeah. they're they're you know it's a brother and sister, well, and not then maybe they did, they did, yeah. <laughs> but then he gets their kiss come up. It's on them. He, Christian Slater gets his revenge on on that, and then at the very end again. Steve Buscemi comes out with it, you know, very funny. And I recognize that cab driver, which I forgot to go look to see what else he's in, who turns around and is like, what are you laughing about, buddy? You know, uh, but it's a great little, especially at the very end, it comes, it's again, very much like the uh, tied you over, you know, where they both come yeah, out, you know what yeah. I mean? They're going to come and it, that's, that's scary that they're talking to him, you know, like where, and that one, at least the Leslie Nielsen one, you think that they're, they have their revenge because he inflicted it, but now, he, they're being they're doing Steve Buscemi's bidding so it's like you can't talk your way out of it where it's like you're my sister please you know yeah, I yeah. love you I, I you know defended your honor now this is their first view at some KMB effects we see the mummy yeah and, uh, and it's a great twist on a effects. it's a great twist on a mummy too because you know well again with the how you incapacitate a mummy mummy with the you know you're, 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 you're cutting him apart and he throws him in the, you know it's like it, it's it only that easy you know, <laughs> you know <what> I mean? <laughs> uh, true uh, but yes, great. Some great gore effects. Some great, you know, stuff. Yeah, where I will say, like for a mo- for a movie based on a television show, it really does try to take full advantage of its R rating as a horror sure. movie, There's and they probably of- knew that going in. Yeah, you know. Um, so I really enjoyed that. You know, it's it's very fun. And then you get to the second story in this, which is called um, Cat from Hell. Cat from Hell, which you know, when we talked about the EC Comics. This one has, like, less... There's no real, like... Uh, I mean, I guess there's no... In a way, I guess, they, you know, nobody in this script is great in terms of, like, there's no good people. Like, there's no one to root for. No redeemable. Ex- except for maybe the cat. <laughs> or the kid at the beginning. Oh, you're talking about in, in this story in, in this, particular? Oh, in I this thought you story, meant the movie no, itself. in the cat from hell. Okay. Yeah, there's no um, one really. Well, you know who could be. I mean, I, I mean, do you think what's her face? The girl who take the sister who dies who takes the kid the cat in. I don't know. You know, but uh, you know when we talked about the EC comic stuff, we talked about how they kind of ran the gamut of stories, and so like in a way, this one is all you know. You get that classic monster, living dead mummy story, but then we talked about how some of the EC comic stuff came. You know, they were adapting film noir stories. You know, so. You know, in a way, it still kind of is, even though it's not, like, blatantly going for an homage, still so far, I feel like, you know, we're still representing the spirit of EC Comics a little bit in the stories that are being told. Well, this for me is... And it doesn't hurt that this was the one that we talked about earlier, was slated to be in Creepshow 2. Yeah, and and this for me is very... uh, like a love letter to like film noir and like it seems very much like a a private detective the Philip Marlowe coming over like um, the big sleep talking to the guy who's in the wheelchair about his predicament yeah. but I love that he's a hitman and the how this sh- it's it what really impressed me this viewing is how this is shot yeah. how there's so many of those great tricks uh, transition stuff yeah, into it, like the it's beautiful and how they do the lighting setup stuff and yeah and you have um, what's her face the great Alice Drummond in it playing the one of the sisters yeah she was she's a familiar face for our generation she was in so many she's things. in Ghostbusters she's in Awakening she's got she's a bunch of William Hickory who we brought up is in Hickey we brought him Hickey, up with, I say Hickory uh, we brought him up in Tales from the Crypt 
uh, the episode because he was in one of the, the most, for me, one of the most memorable episodes. Yeah, and if we're counting, uh, for people who are playing along, who've been listening to our four episodes, the fourth episode in order I've been watching the Tales from the Crypt shows is the one y- is written by, we said, first we said it was the William Sadler's the first one, then it was the Richard Donner, which is the Santa Claus one, and the third one was a uh, Zemeckis one about uh, what's-his-face who can't die with Alexander Knox in it. Joe Pantoliano, the fourth episode, written by Fred Decker, with uh, Leah Thompson, is the one you were telling oh, me about yeah. the pawn, the pawn shop one, where she she trades in her looks for her beauty. Yeah, that's episode four, and I had to make a note like, oh, I better mention that for th- everyone who's playing along. But William Hickey, William Hickey to our generation was like the old guy in every, the old guy. In yeah, every. he talks like you know, he's not he's not like a poor man. But, uh, he he was his career goes back to the fifties, sure, and then into like the sixties and. Uh, 70s season th- and even 80s season, th- some stuff that uh, we know and stuff that a lot of our listeners would know. He's in The Producers. Yep. He's in Boston Strangler. Yeah. Which is a movie that Dion and I both love a lot. He's yep. in The Sentinel, which is a late 70s wacky uh, horror movie. Um, and uh, he was in, I don't remember him. I mean, maybe we brought him up in the episode, but he's in Remo Williams. Yeah, he's in Remo Williams. But he's also, for people, they see him every Christmas. He's in uh, um, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. He's the old guy that comes over and, you know, his his toupee catches fire. And he's also, for me, I'm a big fan of the 1986 movie Pritzy's Honor with Jack Nicholson and Angelica Houston. Uh, he's the, the like the Godfather in that movie. So for me, for years, you're like, oh, it's that guy, you know, because he. O- I, I don't know if he's playing older than type, but he always seems so elderly and like on death's door, you know. Yeah, he was in. They had him as a as a semi recurring, just a couple of episodes in the show Wings. Yes, where. Uh, and his son was played by Gilbert Godfrey. Oh, that's perfect. <laughs> that's, I was going to say, he's a poor man's Gilbert Godfrey. Um, you know, I just, Ralph Morello, is that his name here? Is the the gentleman that I said I couldn't remember his um, his uh, his name, but he's the guy that's the taxi driver. But people will know him from Day of the Dead. He's oh, one of the yeah. soldiers. But he's the one that's he's like got his head Steve, shaved in this movie, right? Yeah, and he's like to Steve Buscemi. What are you laughing about? When he turns around and he's like, so that's people will know him as one of the the, the guy, one of the army guys in Day of the Dead. Uh, but this is a great story. And then also you have Mark uh, Margolis, who's legendary from Scarface. He's also an Ace Ventura. Ventura. He's Ace Ventura's yeah, landlord. Yeah, he's another really familiar yeah. face. Uh, he's the hitman that you know that, that wants to kill the kids at the bomb under the car in Scarface. That Al Pacino kills, and that sets off the whole ending of Scarface. But uh, it's a great story where it's this old guy and his two sisters living together, you know, and with with the butler, and then all of a sudden this, and they're living this very boring life because they have all the money in the world and they're dying or whatever. And this cat comes, and the backstory is that they're part of, and it's kind of almost um, uh, topical of today where they own a pharmaceutical company that's made this drug that is supposed to help people who are ill, but at the same time, it's highly addictive. It gives you a kind of a euphoric kind of a feeling, and it doesn't do much, and it's, I think it's very expensive. Yeah. You know, so it's kind of, you see what's going on, sadly, with the opioid epidemic nowadays with, um, you know, painkillers and stuff like that. So they also le- kind of say that through testing, they had to test on in New Jersey on all these cats these, uh, you know, Felis Domesticuses, and they kill, like, what they say, like something like 4,000 cats they go through Four or something? Or five or something like that. Yeah, so one day this black cat shows up, and the cat looks like a like a young cat. You know, it looks like it's just out of being a kitten. And 
they take the cat in, but they don't want to, and then it ends up, and this is brilliant how they tell the story, is how it, it kills the two sisters and the, the, the butler one at a time, and then last that's left is Hickey, and Hickey is the one who calls um, the hitman to come over, and he says, like, I talked to Soul Lozier. I'd love to know who Soul Sol Lozier is, but he says you've done a lot of stuff, so we bring in uh, David Johansson, who is um, was the lead singer of the band the New York Dolls, the New York Dolls. And then in the eighties, re- he reinvented himself as Buster Point. Yeah, and he's also in Scrooge. He's, he's Scrooge. the taxi driver in the the I guess the Ghost of Christmas Present or Past. He's he I guess yeah. It's been so long since I saw. I think that he's movie. the Ghost of Christmas Past because he's showing you know they're driving around and showing what happened. Maybe which coincidentally. Gilbert Gottfried auditioned for that part. Oh, really? As a taxi driver? (laughs) (laughs) See, there you go. Small world. But when I was little, I didn't know the New York Dolls. And I last week told a connection about a guy that I know that was the drummer. But then when I go on Wikipedia, that's not right. The guy, I forget the guy's name. So I have to figure out, I have to go talk to him again and know his connection to the the David Johansson band. But I thought it was the Dolls because that's the only band Johansson had. Well, you know, he might have, he had his own career. Yeah, but he would, when I talked to the, the gentleman whose name escapes me but he's a, now a financial guy like kind of like the guy from mash wayne rogers who was an actor for mash but then he went and stopped acting really and yeah. then he started doing financial stuff this is how i know this guy but i he, went saw he uh, says that that the thing broke up because B- johansson went to start doing the buster point you yeah. know his career blew up i uh a few years ago uh he uh hubert sumlin yep. who was Howlin', howlin wolf's guitar player God rest his soul. He did an album, I think, called Howlin' for Hubert, where it was kind of like a duets type thing where he and a band had a new singer for like a bunch of different... Every song on the album had a different singer sang one or maybe a singer. Like Clapton does two songs on that album, I think. Um, But David Johansson does some songs on that album. And then I guess they toured because I saw at the now closed B.B. King Blues Club in Times Square, which was... Uh, one of my favorite places and one of the places I played uh, quite often. You played both rooms there. Played, I opened for some bands on the main stage and I played in the in the smaller room uh, kind of as the headliner. But um, I saw them do, I saw him do the uh, Howlin' for Hubert show. Yeah. And it was, uh, it was David Johansson and, and he, her, he sang and them all or just do sang, his? sang the whole he did just he did the whole show. That's so funny because there's what's the album that he did that was pretty big. It's not about them shoes. Is that is that uh, John Joe Cocker? I'm getting that. There's a big album that came out that you gave me that someone did with Clapton and everybody where they do. Oh, like maybe that's the maybe that's the name of the album. And then the, and then he toured with. But the, the, even that album is basically just Howlin' Wolf. Songs. Yeah, he's they're doing all new Howlin' Wolf songs with guest stars and yeah, Clapton does. That's probably the album that I'm thinking of. But uh, the tour. Is, is yeah. howling for Hubert. And um, long story about how uh, Hubert Sumlin, but it's funny because then one day my father called me up and he's at the casinos in Connecticut and Mohican Sun. He's like, there's this great blues bland, band in the in the w- Lion's Den, which is the Wolf's Den, which is the free place. And I'm like, read me who it is. And it was Pine Top Perkins on piano, Hubert Sumlin. I was like, you're seeing them for free. <laughs> you know, and I, and yeah, I, I never yeah. got to see him. And then he since passed away. And isn't it Clapton had to help pay for his burial as well? I think we, Clapton... And maybe somebody else like maybe Keith, Keith Richards. Richards. Yeah. You know, just um, like they did with kind of. With Howlin' and Wolf. With Howlin' and Wolf, they think they paid for like his, his tombstone. tombstone. I think for Hubert, they had the they paid to have the mu- the body moved, yeah. shipped back to wherever uh, it was from. So David Johansson, I knew him first as, you know, 
he reinvented himself in the 80s doing stuff like um, Is That You, Santa Claus, Hit the Road, Jack. There was a, what's the name of that show, Star Search? Remember Star Search with Ed McMahon? Yeah. So Ed McMahon would come out, and it's a, it's a very early version of nowadays um, of American Idol, but you have kids come on, and they would try to do a song, and I don't think they would be booed off. I forget what the how they voted them on, but they it was- They had judges. It was it? And they'd be like, and then they would- the They'd show stars? Would, yeah. Five yeah. stars. And exactly. They, they had different categories. It was like kids and, Yeah, and all that kind of- Like, it was almost like Showtime at the Apollo, and- uh, Ed McMahon would MC it, and I remember they had a couple for some. Then I guess to keep it lively, they'll have a musical performance by someone established. So Buster Poindexter used to play a lot. That, and he, you know, it's, it's very so. Then seeing him in this, where it's not Buster Poindexter, and I think it's he's pretty good in this. You know, playing the hitman. Yeah, I mean, it's you know for, the, for what they're doing. Yeah. But I'm really impressed by again just how they, they planned it all out, and a lot of like the flashbacks. You see a little bit of that in the Frighteners, the Peter Jackson movie, where you have. It's a flashback, but then the lighting changes and the actor moves forward, and then all of a sudden, the lighting another lighting uh, cue comes up, and then it's you're in present. I love all that shit, you know. Yeah. And if the astute eye will realize, oh, it's one shot or whatever, they do the whole story is really they do a lot of trickery like that. And it's very that's why to me it's very reminiscent of like the old noir. You know, with how you said about the colors and how they're doing flashbacks and stuff, and then th- the place itself properly. So now the bit of trivia yeah. of the place itself, since you said it, the mansion, yeah. according to John Harrison, yeah. was Mussolini's mansion in America. Yeah. And so it was owned by the Italian government back when Mussolini was in power. Wow. To, you know, the exteriors of it look like uh, either uh, Harold Lloyd's up close, it, it kind of rem- reminiscent of that to me, or to me it looked like the... Uh, mansion that's in the godfather that the horse's head is in you know when they have the pan yeah. up which is also in romeo is bleeding that uh roy Schotter owns when he's walking gary Ullman to tell him like you know i'm gonna take your toe if you don't whatever yeah. um but the cat kills everybody this little innocent little black cat and the setup is like you know now he wants him to kill he's gonna give him what like a fifty thousand dollars and fifty thousand whatever's pay and then he takes the cat taxi and leaves and he leaves david johansson in the house to get this cat and it's you know, you think this could be a very hokey story, how they do it, and they have even POV first-person shots of the cat looking yeah. with this little effect so you could tell it's the cat hiding around corners. But I think it's a very effectively done story. Yeah, you know, I mean, the only thing that I think is hokey is, like, when they're telling the story of, I believe it was the Alice Drummond, like, the cat on her face. Oh, yeah, that's a little... Like, the cat doesn't, you know... Yeah, the cat it's, itself, it's a, it becomes like a face hugger. The fake cat itself doesn't look that yeah. great, but, like, the effect of, like, the cat going into David Johansson's mouth... Spoiler alert. Him, ...and yeah. it coming out of him, which we kind of did that earlier. Like, I think all that stuff looks great. Uh, you know, and then, to me, you know, also the trickery of them when, when the butler, uh, uh, Mar- uh, Margolis, is driving, and then they, they fake the crash, you know? But that's also scary of him driving. I don't know why he just doesn't pull over, but the cat loose in the car, and he's driving, and then the cat's jumping around scratching him and causes this accident yeah and then hickey's like and a week later he's the cat's back so the whole night he's trying to kill the cat um johansson and then johansson it ends up it jumps on his freaking face and then goes inside him and you know he sh- sh- first tries to kill him with a he's going to give him what a, like a lethal injection of uh pure heroin and then he gets pissed he takes something else out and then finally he takes out it's it's like a, almost like a desert eagle with a laser sighting and then which is interesting, he has a bead on it, he shoots it, 
and then it's like, oh, you know, how? So it's almost gives it a mythical, yeah, like it is maybe like a, the akin spirit to revenge. It goes into it. It goes. It jumps into his face. Goes into his mouth, and you, the camera doesn't pull away. You see the freaking thing go into its face, and it's something you'll never forget. <laughs> into his neck, he falls on the floor, and then you see it go into his stomach, and then it kind of rests and gets into a position, and then he's dead until morning. Old man comes back. An old man we've already set up has these um, heart issues, and he's taken the tablets that his pharmaceutical company has designed. And uh, he's like, oh, my God. You know, I, it, for, yeah. it, brilliant because they make you almost feel for the old man because the old man's kind of like the one for the whole time warning everybody, like, we can't have the cat come in and my poor family, you know. So when he comes in, he's like, oh, my God, he's killed the hitman too. And then the cat comes out of the hitman's throat. And like you said, you'll never forget the ass of a cat with a tail <laughs> going in or they push a real cat at some point comes out of his mouth yeah. this POV and he comes out jumps on the guy's um, he's in a wheelchair on his weight uh, on his uh, lap and he's trying to get his tablets and he ends up just having a heart attack and dies and that's you know the cat starts licking him and it's a brilliant ending yeah. to the story and it, you know can be yeah, great, you know, great effects. Yeah, so I, I very love that story. And then the last story, and then in between this, we get cut bats where she's um, Deborah Harris like it's almost one o'clock. I got to yeah, put you in the oven. In the oven. And he's no, like, one more, story. one more story. You said you like romantic stories. Yeah. Is there a romantic story in here? And this is your book that you said you've read up cover to cover, but you don't know any <laughs> stories. So I'm gonna find you another story that you don't know. So we come to this last story, which is Lovers' Vow, which for me, aside from the grotesqueness of me liking. Gangsters and Hitman when I was little and the idea of him killing a cat and seeing that. Christina loves cat killing. I love that. That's terrible. <laughs> That's terrible. Yeah, staunch. Yeah. Uh, not advocate. Whatever the opposite <laughs> of advocate Whatever that is. is of killing cats. You know, and then you think about the, which is not a, 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 a alley to go down, but the lexicon of like, uh, there's one way to skin a cat or you let the cat out of a bag. All these like, oh my God, what the people used to do to these cats. And then, you know, you had cat's eye. Cat's a eye. Couple eyes, a couple of years before Yeah, which this. is sucking the, the air out of the cat. You know, the whole idea, which I don't know if that's an uh, urban legend, the I cat's sucking like an old. Yeah, wives tale about which related yeah sucking the breath out of elderly and and babies uh kill them but this next story is the other story that i remembered very iconic and very um like i said it's so simple you you forget i mean you 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 won't it won't leave you because even as young as you are you can follow basically the the theme of this yeah and we have the great james remar and also the great robert klein in this as well robert klein and the great ray don chong yeah who's also been on this both of them uh remar has been in uh, Warriors, which we've covered on this show, and I, f- I feel like again he's been on something else yeah. as a cameo, and then Radong Chong has been on in Commando, which we've covered on the show. Daughter of Tommy Chong, Tommy Chong of the Cheech and Chong variety, of the Cheech Chong fame. Yes, which I have a story of them, but that's not for another day. That's for when we do up in smoke. Yeah, one of the the Chong, the Cheech and Chong movies. So this is really interesting because this story is based on, like Blake said, a Japanese myth and folklore legend of the Yukiona, Yukiona. And it's a crazy story where dating back for centuries, uh, it's a story about a woman dressed in white, a very pretty woman, pale woman with black hair dressed in white that people would see basically out in the cold. And there's, I guess, two versions of this is one where... Well, there's actually like several... Yeah. Stories they that involve the Yukiona, which is considered to be like the spirit of the winter or the snow. Yeah, she's 
refer to as the, the, the snow mother, the snow hag, the snow girl, the snow sis, all these different So names. like all these different regions of Japan, they all have these different stories involving this character. Which is scary. Yeah. <laughs> because, you know, you wonder, it's like, it's almost like Bigfoot. Like, is there a little credence to this? If this is, this? I mean, of course, it's just probably word of mouth. But yeah. still, the idea of the, the there's one where it's... um. The uh, elderly couple, she knocks on the door and they let her in because she wants to warm themselves by their fire in their house. And then when she wants to go back outside and go further on her journey, the elderly man tries to stop her and she's very cold and all of a sudden she disappears and just floats away. Yeah, there's other she like turns into wind or something. Yeah, <laughs> and there's other stories where she's uh, with a child on the side of the road in the snow and or in a snowstorm. And there's an idea of if, if you're a traveling person, she beckons you to hug the child. And if you do hug the child, the child becomes so heavy, you start to sink in the snow, and then you, s you freeze to death. And then there's a way to thwart this by uh, one warrior puts his tanto, which is the small knife, in his mouth and hugs the child like that, where the blade is close to the child's face. And he's able to overcome the myth, and by doing that, she's so happy that he's hugged the child that she rewards him with riches and all this kind of a thing. Then there's another story of she tries to beckon people and she tries to kiss or have sex with them and then that freezes them to death. But then most relevant to this story is there's the story of which what you're going to allude to, right, where she marries. Yeah. Now, apparently, the, this is, uh, you know, try to keep the history <laughs> kind of <laughs> short, but it's actually in... in, in uh, in researching, it's fascinating because there is a writer who's a Greek writer named Lafsadio La <laughs> Hearn, or Hearn, H-E-A-R-N, who, uh, who lived from nineteen who lived from 1850 to 1904. And he uh, moved around a lot. He moved to Ireland when he was a kid, and then he moved to uh, uh, the USA when he was like 19, I think. And he became a writer and, he, and a reporter. And then eventually he moved to the uh, French West Indies. And then in 1890, obviously uh, towards the end of his life, um, he moves to Japan. And he ends up getting a teaching job in Japan, and he marries a daughter of a local samurai family and her name was Koi Koizumi Setsu and they have four children and he becomes a naturalized citizen of, to of uh, Japan and he changes his name in Japan to uh, Koizumi Yakumo and he becomes fascinated uh, and he writes a lot so of he changes his name and appropriates the family I, yeah. think it, I think it's the surname they usually put the first name of the family the, front, yeah, the family yeah. name is first. Yeah, yeah in, I, in you a know, lot of Asian cultures. Japanese. The, for people who are in the in the know, uh, for years Blake and I have toiled with script ideas for horror movies, and I th I hope that people don't steal this, but I think it's so fascinating. Celtic, Irish, particularly, and Japanese myth and folklore. There's so many amazing stories that go back the centuries. Yeah. that can really be mined and turned into like scary cautionary tales out of like uh, what's his face does the ring. Um, you know, those kind of freaky sure, stories. Yeah. yeah. And but then there's kind of, that's un, uh, for the most part, like kind of untapped. Yeah, that's for, what I'm saying. For a Western audience. You know, so anyway. it's like you can really appropriate kind of these stories and either do them Japanese. And, you know, as I say this, as of this recording, 2019, the second season of The Terror, which I haven't been watching, is set in Japan. So I hope they're not doing that <laughs> on that series right well, now. Wasn't it set in America, but in a Japanese American internment Oh, camp? I don't know. Okay. I knew, oh, I didn't, I purposely didn't look at it to get I spoiled. I haven't watched it, but I believe because. 
George Takei was on Howard Stern talking about it. George Takei's whole big thing is yeah, he was in a, a, a termicant Japanese or American termicant. Yeah, and I think it takes place in one, but I haven't seen it yet. So, but I, I, be wrong. but I don't know if it involves any of their myth and folklore because yeah. like banshees are able to supposedly to the folklore of Irish are able to even follow families and they can come to America because banshees are usually supposed to warn of uh, a calamity that's impending on the family. Maybe yeah. it's same thing. The Japanese spirits can move to America. Well, anyway, so this guy here, yeah, Hearn. Uh, he, you know, he moves in, like I said, in 1890, he only lives to 1904. So for like 14 years, he's, he's, he's living, he's become a Japanese, uh, naturalized citizen, changed his name. He's all in and he, he writes a lot of stuff about Japan in this, in this time, but he becomes most known for writing, uh, legends and ghost Japanese legends and ghost stories. And before we go any further, it's really interesting not to get into, but the Japan, the, I mean, I think it was profiled in that last samurai movie with Tom Cruise, but they were really late. The Japan wanted to stay really isolated for years and, it wasn't until they were forced through, a, I think, a war to trade with maybe Britain or the surrounding countries. Um, you know, so for many years, they were kind of encapsulated. So at yeah. the time you're talking of, not that it's still feudal Japan, but they still had a lot of those older elements. Sure. Th yeah. That then suddenly you're getting like the 19th or 20th century industrial revolution kind of products like guns and stuff. So it's, yeah. So when he's probably writing these, you probably still have a lot of that. Um, you know, traditional, uh, you know, old world way of doing things or how people are living. And one of the most famous books that he writes about it is called uh, Quidon Stories and Studies of Strange Things, uh, which I imagine is an English translation. This that book gets translated, or stories from that book gets tra gets tra get translated in 1965 into a Japanese anthology horror movie by the same name, Quidon. Uh, directed by Masaki Kobayashi. Nice. And um, good work. Blake. One of the stories in the movie and in the book, uh, in the in the in the movie, it's called "The Woman of the Snow." Now, obviously, I I I he's writing about this stuff, so I I gather that this is stuff that he stories that he gathered and he's chronicling, sure, and not necessarily inventing but maybe there is some artistic license that he's well, taking. Well, he could be just going around to different regions like Konichiwa, and he's like, yeah. you know, saying... So the idea is the story, the original... <laughs> the original story that he writes down here, and like I said, I don't know if he's the author of that story or just chronicling folklore, um, is uh, two woodcutters get caught in a, in, a, in a horrible winter storm, and they take shelter in, like, a fish hut. Uh... And they're visited by the Yukioni, Yukiona, which is the spirit, and which we've established. And the woman, yeah. and the 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 spirit, this woman kills one guy, and then she takes kind of pity on the young guy because he's young, and she says, "I'll let you live, but you can't tell anybody, yeah, that you saw me, that this happened, you didn't see anything. Keep your mouth shut." And uh, he's like, "Okay." So then he goes and he goes back. He, okay. he survives the story. He goes. He survives the storm. Then he goes home and eventually he meets a woman and he falls in love and they have a uh, children and they have a family. And one day he kind of loses his head and he decides to tell her about this time that you know this crazy shit happened. Yeah, it's hard to keep a secret. <laughs> And so he tells her, and she's like, what the fuck? I told you not to tell anybody. Yeah. Um, 
uh, but in this in this story, she spares his life because of their children. Yeah, I've also heard too that the way to get out of it also is to because since you're telling, there's a, like a like a clerical. You can look into the to the to the the uh, whatever you're signing, the contract, and it's like since she's not a human, you're not technically breaking because you're telling her, and then you're like, well, you're not you're not technically human. You're not just anybody. Yeah, you're you're a, a, an entity or store. The, the other you could die story before that is that some guy marries her, and then she he's, she doesn't want to take a bath, and he's trying to get her to bathe, and then once he forces her to take a bath, she disappears, and there's only icicles. Yeah. You know, it's like this whole thing. So, like you're saying, I think these have been around for centuries, but then he appropriates this one. But he does spare, but it's kind of a child-related thing, too. Like you're saying that, that they have children, yeah. and then she either, I don't know, I guess this story is that he spares her life because he's like, she's like, what the fuck, but we got kids, <laughs> and I need, I, I need, you know, some child support. <laughs> yeah. You know. So, uh, Michael McDowell uh, kind of uh, adapts this story to... Contemporary New York City, yeah, very crow Ninja Turtles, New York City, <laughs> and changes uh, the idea of the spirit into a gargoyle. And uh, as we said before, it's you know it's very much kind of like this romantic fairy tale, and it, it's a it's the story that stood out for both Dion and I uh, as we were kids because I do think that there's this idea of when you're a kid, even though like you don't have you haven't experienced any kind of romantic love or anything, but there's still like this idea of romance that I, at least for me as a kid was very appealing. And I think that aspect yeah. of this, the tragedy of it, yeah. even as like a 10 year old you know, kid, yeah. like really made an impact. It's on for me. me, it's so much more romanticized my remembrance of this and watching it because yeah. for me, it is a little hurried where the whole incident happens. And like in the next alley, he meets her and then it's like, kind of like, well, there's yeah. more of a level of why isn't she just leaving, you know, but she stays with him, And then, so you know, it was it was a complete twist for me seeing it back then, but I don't know. I wonder if seeing it at our age for the first yeah. time, if there would be like, oh, you know, you, you see it coming. You know, and the, you know? and the idea is that, like, she's the gargoyle that is on the building next to where he lives. And so that gargoyle has always looked over through his skylight onto him. And so she has fallen in love with him. From afar, but it's not. That's all implied because that's never really mentioned. It's not mentioned, but it's but definitely you see, implied. Yeah, you see, you're looking down, but then there's you don't get the you don't understand why. So you know, to quickly set him up, he's a struggling artist, and it's just shit ain't getting anywhere. Very Tom Baker from the Vault of Horror movie. Robert Klein's his agent. They meet in a bar. Robert Klein's like, you know, I can't yeah, keep I you in your agent. Shit, yeah, get your shit out. The the woman who has it, whatever the place she she wants your shit out. And then he's like, fuck, what am I going to do? And he bills to pay. So he gets hammered at this local bar with his friends. And then the barkeep closes and they're walking out the back door. And then that's, so then all of a sudden they encounter this creature, which we learn is a gargoyle. It brutally kills the the bartender, the guy. Yeah, not fooling around. No, it's horrifying. And then when he turns, and he's probably still got his dick out because he was pissing against the wall. It's kind of hard to hear, but it, it says this thing, which is very iconic for us when I'm little. She's like, you know, you're, I spare your life for a promise, and then it says this whole little spiel, which it's kind of like the, you know, it's, I wonder if it's how many people it's done this to, but it's like, you know, you can't tell anybody about this. We can't tell we talked. You can't tell you saw me. Blah, 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 blah. And he's like, okay, and then scratches him and leaves like, you know, what does it say? It says the um, this is to cross your heart, cross your heart, s- slashes his chest and gets the hell out of there. Uh, Creature is very interesting. You know, it's uh, you know when you have you see the 
they, they do a, a, a really wide shot and you see its wings and then it's in silhouette and then it comes up in close up and it's it's a very interesting take on a gargoyle yeah you know it's got an animatronic head yeah very scary it kind of the face kind of looks like the creature that we were talking about an hour ago in the Savini um, Tars, Tales from the Dark Side show episode yeah. where the little girl creature living in the in the walls because that face is very animatronic and the eyes blink and it look like real eyes how they're moving and uh, when the thing leaves he, he stumbles away he's very scared and then he runs into Ray Dong Chong who's like I was meeting friends but I got lost and I'm walking around and he's yeah. he grabs her and it almost looks like a mugging he's like don't you understand I'm fucking gonna scare you <laughs> it's a dangerous place yeah I'll get you get a taxi but you're gonna come to my house first and we'll get, call you a taxi and then very quickly they become romantically involved and they fall for each other and then 10 years later 10 years later and then they've got two kids well she also sets up that he uh he becomes successful like she and you wonder like what kind of deal did she make when you find out what the twist of the story is oh she knows somebody right she says a friend of a friend has owns a gallery owns a gallery and you can you could she's really really interested in exhibiting your, you exhibitioning your, stuff, your stuff and then she ends up selling and becoming a success based yeah. on that but he's obsessed with this image so he keeps trying to draw but i always wonder like where's the side story where she goes and confronts the the gallery owner yeah where is she's like i'll let you live if you show this guy yeah, stuff. yeah that's what i'm saying or or is it like uh the getaway with uh uh with Saga, uh, with with mcqueen is ally mcgraw has, sleeps with the warden to get him out of prison is she going and using her womanly ways to convince whoever this is or are they confronting him his, he, he or she in gargoyle form like you're saying i was barely alive <laughs> you my friend my friend will call you tomorrow and you have to let him open on business hours you know so he becomes very successful, but he's haunted by this image, and he's trying forever to draw this right. And then is, is the catalyst of the, you know, is his fame on the image of the... I don't think so. You know what I mean? Because he's keeping all that hidden. Okay. So I didn't know if, like, whatever he draws is, oh, it's a success, and it wouldn't have, he wouldn't have thought of that had he not... No, because he's always trying to hide... Yeah, from her, right? Or, or yeah, what he's like, doing. Because he's not allowed to tell anybody about what yeah. he saw. So, uh you know, we see a thing where she. We think that she finds a picture. She's going to pull it. There's a corner of a picture sticking out of a desk drawer, and she goes to pull it. And she ends up ripping the corner off, so she doesn't see what it is. Darn! <laughs> but it's like you know, it's the suspense. Like she's going to see what this thing is. So they've had ten years together. They've they've, they've two married children. two children who look like they're like he's, around seven, eight. He got his manager back. A or guy his agent and a girl. Back. Yeah, Robert Klein's fucking back. Like, and he's like they're celebrating that night, and he's like, I'm going to go. I'll see you tomorrow. And he leaves, and he's he's calling a taxi, and. I forget it's a, it's why. It's the 10th anniversary of when they met. And, and that, that the reason night. why he's saying, well, listen, I'm going to tell you. Because, you know, you, I, it's, I think that's realistic where, you know, you become intimate with a person no yeah, matter I mean, anyway. I, think, I mean, I, obviously there's a little bit of like you have to suspend a little bit of disbelief of like he's kept the secret this long. He knows the, what the consequences potentially are. Yeah. But there's also this idea of like there's this piece of him that he's been obsessed with for 10 years. Yeah, that too. That he's hel- he's kept as a secret. Yeah. And he just wants to tell somebody. And he he wants just wants to tell somebody, but he also feels like, in a way, like he can't fully give himself to her unless he's completely because he's hiding. partially obsessed with this other thing. Yeah. And then if he shares it with her, then she knows everything, and then like then he can fully give yeah. her one. I mean, that's even like with a sexual fetish or something. There's so you're keeping something from your lover or a secret or whatever, and you feel like you got to get clear the air and get past whatever it is yeah. or so i mean like i, I kind of buy it yeah oh, I do like too. I, i'm totally into like the room the romance yeah of it. you know i've said on past shows like even when we were doing superman 2 like vo- why i like 
the theatrical cut of Superman 2 better than the Donner cut is because like the romantic aspect of it. Sure. The yeah. love story is more uh, in the foreground for yeah. me in that in that version. So I'm a I'm a romantic at heart. Like sure. I love romantic comedies. And so like I totally uh you know, this works on me. Like I love the romance, the romance of it. Like I said, I love the way it looks, and I love Harrison's score for it. Yeah. Um, and then the reveal is so he he unloads to her what happened, and then that's when I see this is when I remember when I was little. I was like, what? Well, and she's like, what the fuck? Why did you tell? Yeah, me? I told you not to tell anybody. Because not only that, it's like also like her life's ruined now. Well, that's the thing, and then it's like you you feel bad for him, and then but then he breaks the promise, and then there's this horrible reveal where. She then um, starts to revert back to the gargoyle, and it's this terrible looking, not terrible, but I mean terrible in a great, it looks terrifying. great, terrifying way of her breaking out of the human skin and turning in back, reverting to the gargoyle, and that's really well done, the, that horrible, it's like a snake losing a skin, and it's breaking and cracking, yeah. and it's... But it's also like, from her point of view, it's like, we've had 10 years, like, I love you. And you ruined that. And because look what of, you did. Yeah, look what you did. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and it's and it's it's sad. And then all of a sudden, you hear the kids screaming in the other room, and he's like, "Oh no, I'm so sorry." And then she reverts back to the gargoyle. It's horrifying. And but then, unlike the Japanese myth or whatever, where she spares his life, she's like, "Now I have to follow through." You you kind of made your own bed. And I love I loved you, and rips his throat out. Yeah, yeah. And then grabs the two kids, and the kids like mm, the kids are sad. It's all very what, sad. The kids become gargoyles. Yeah, the, yeah that's, <laughs> so that's what I meant. You hit the kids screaming in the other room, and they come out. And they're but you gargoyles. don't know if they're just at the time. At least for me as a viewer, you don't know if they're just screaming. Oh, because they're dying. Because or whatever. like shit's cr- like they hear sh- crazy. Oh shit no, outside. I thought I always thought that something was going on wrong with them, and then when they come out, they've also endured the pain that she must have endured breaking out of the human skin. But then she, it's almost also that he. It's almost like she's cursed by some sort of like Beauty and the Beast kind of a, a curse. Yeah. And that the only way she can get out of that is to have some like true love or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And then she has that life, but then because he breaks the promise, it's almost her breaking. So as soon as she becomes the gargoyle again and then kills him, she grabs the two kids who almost seem like they understand what's happening. They all of a sudden have this knowledge as well. And then when she flies out of the place through the, the uh, window up top, everybody has in these apartments have these loft windows, yeah. she breaks out and then she comes to rest. And Robert Klein, who's been trying to hail the cab, he gets into a cab and he hears it. He's like, wow, it's fucking crazy around here. Let's get the hell out of here. <laughs> he drives away. And then she kind of comes to rest on back on her perch. And she's got the two kids at this point. And she turns, slowly turns to stone and she's back to, you know. So it's very, it's almost like a very... Um, Sad tale. Yeah, it's a blues song, right tragic. there. Yeah, it's a tra- it's a tragedy, you yeah. know. And that closes out the last story, and then we get to the end where, you know, Deborah Harry's about to cook yeah. the kid, and, and then like, quick, we gotta get the credits. Yeah, yeah, kid, fucking killer. And then all of a sudden, he just takes over, beats the crap out of her, is able to throw her onto the freaking um, into the into the pan into the oven. Yeah, and it's a huge, it's a real deep oven, and she throws and gets in, shuts the door, and that's the end of it. And he's able to get out, and then that's kind of the end of the movie. Um, and then two. A couple things. One, we said that there is a Martin reference because when when, when are they watching Martin on the TV? Uh, the, the during the, the cat of uh, cat from hell. Yeah. yeah. So uh, what's David Johansson is, is watching, watching and we should mention since we mentioned his stuff post the Poindexter, uh, we'd be remiss if we didn't mention his hot hot hot. That's his big oh, song. Yeah. Uh, and then also Dawn of the Dead is being watched in the first one, Lot two seven two seven nine because. Uh, Remember the guys watching it when the mummy comes over. Yeah. And then uh, uh, okay. last thing about the trailer, that it's interesting that you have Steve Buscemi there, and it doesn't sound like him reading the narration of the the of the 
whatever the incantation he's reading, yeah. it doesn't sound like his voice. It's uh, you see him and then you see somebody else, and it doesn't sound like it's him. They tacked it on, like you yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. But according um, to the internet, um, so you don't know if it's true. Allegedly, <laughs> uh, James Remar was offered the chance to either play the part that he plays in this, which is Preston the artist, or the David Johansson hitman character. Oh, and he was like, I've already played like a heavy sure. I want to play something different. Yeah. And for the and lady, so he ends up taking the the artist character. And for the ladies and for the guys who are into it, he becomes a kind of a prominent character on Sex in the City some yeah. years later. So people know him for that, um, not just from his evil role as Ajax. And he's also in uh, the Quest with Jean Claude, directed by Jean Claude yes. Van Damme. <laughs> uh, I forgot he directed that movie. Um, so uh, that kind of. Uh, Ends it. I'm thinking. Is there anything else that we missed that we have about the it's movie? The I don't. I don't think. No. I they, do. So it becomes a modest success. Uh, there's. I mean, it's made on like I think three million, and they grow sixteen. They do. There it, was talks of doing another one. Yeah, there was talks of doing. Yeah, three point five to budget. It grosses sixteen million. There was talks to make a sequel um, with a um, Robert Blot movie uh, short story called Almost Human, and another, the Stephen King Pitfall which was originally planned for Creepshow 2, supposedly, yeah. and another story called Rainy Season, uh, but then that never comes to fruition, sadly. So those are sitting somewhere maybe one day, um, you know, uh, people Richard will... Richard Rubenstein will decide to do another anthology. Yeah, and, and then... And dust and those babies yeah, up. And, and hit them, you know, do them up. So uh, this was fun, and this closes out kind of, in a way, it bookends uh, the interconnected 2019 October horror movie creepy extravaganza where um you know we kind of showed our our hemline a little bit in the first episode that we alluded to there was going to be a kind of a, uh, a theme a theme but then we tried to keep ourselves quiet and see if people would be guessing but then people didn't really guess so nobody cared what it was good and then now we're kind of like this is what it was we were doing an it's anthology order because to do that many because you're doing as many stories per episode. Per episode. And then you think about the some of the <laughs> But you add all those up. That's yeah. being covered. <laughs> Certainly <laughs> Crypt Show and E C comics. You covered the, a lot of stories. In the ta- Tales from the Crypt, that was yeah, that was pretty big, hefty stuff. Maybe we'll do another uh, you know, <laughs> uh, uh, uh or whatever. Certainly one day we'll get to the Twilight Zone movie. One day we'll get to the Twilight Zone. Uh, movie. but it was just too tall of an order for but this uh, thing. I think, you know, I think generate anthologies. You know, they were big when we were growing yeah, up. Yeah, so sure. And they, they kind of still Even are. in television form and also in, in movie form. Yeah, so. and they kind of still, yeah, they're, they're kind of always with us. And, um, you know, we hope you liked our um, our ho- October horror movie extravaganza as we're closing the door on Halloween. And then we're going to push forth into the rest of the holiday season. Yes. Um, so two weeks we'll have a great new movie ushering in November, which is fun. I uh, think, change uh, of pace a little bit. I think in a couple of weeks we have something very special, especially for the Dion Baia audience planned. That too, yeah. <laughs> and then near the end we close Christmas and then we time. Go, and then we're jumping into Christmas. And we already season. have one or two of them already, and that's going to be also uh, something very special. It's going to surprise a lot of people, maybe even a throwback. Uh, people will certainly dig that to close the year out. Um, but in the meantime... Uh, you can find us on Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers. We're on Instagram. We're on Facebook. We're on Twitter. We have our own website where you can check at stuff out there. And at Sat Sleepovers on social media. Yep. Um, Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers. You can find extras in the podcast uh, on the postings on that page and learn more about us there. 
check out CLNS Media. CLN, CLNSmedia.com. There are friends that uh, we do things with. Check out their website. And uh, follow me on social media at Scored to Death. And check out the book, Scored to Death Conversations with Some of Horror's Greatest Composers, on Amazon, from other book retailers, or from me directly at scoredtodeath.com. Also available on ebook. And. Uh, Cuts from the Crypt. Cuts from the Crypt podcast for only from the Damn Fine Network, which, uh, you know, we have a right in the, the October episode, which is dropping around the same time as this episode. We have a very special episode and a very special guest, so tune into that. Ooh, any any hint on who that is, or no, you're going to leave he's us a friend guessing? Of, he's, a f- he's a friend of Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers, let's say. <laughs> That's that. a very <laughs> wide, uh, wide berth there. Uh, yeah, and then you could find me, Blood in the Streets, got a book, thriller, historical fiction. If you like 70s cop movies, TV, cops, check it out. It's on Am- uh, Amsterdam. It's on Amazon. It's on Amsterdam.com. <laughs> it's on Amsterdam.com. That's a dirty porno <laughs> site you come to find out. Uh, it's on Amazon. It's on Barnes & Noble, wherever you get your books. Uh, it's available in paperback, ebook, and audiobook if you don't read anymore. We like to say support your local podcasters here. If you buy our books, uh, that always helps us generate some income to help do the show. And as John Pizzarelli always says, buy in bulk. <laughs> buy in bulk. Buy it in and bulk. For the three of you that know who John Pizzarelli Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the wonder of it all. You will meet us next week on an all-new episode of Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers. Later. This is basic civil defense information from the Department of Defense, Office of Civil Defense, Washington. If an enemy nuclear attack ever occurs, many areas of the nation would be threatened by radioactive fallout. If there is public shelter nearby, go to it. Or if you have a home shelter, use it, unless your local government has given you other instructions. But if regular shelter isn't available, and you have a house with a below-ground basement or storm cellar, you could still improvise some protection from radioactive fallout. In a basement, choose a corner most below ground and away from windows. Drag in a heavy bench or table to make a roof for your shelter. Cover it with trunks, stacks of firewood, flagstones, books, anything that is thick and heavy. Then wall yourself in on the two open sides with heavy appliances or dressers or chests backed with earth or sand to help absorb radiation. For more information on this and other ways to improvise protection from fallout, check with your local civil defense office. This is basic civil defense information from the Department of Defense, Office of Civil Defense, Washington. If a nuclear attack ever occurs, go to a public shelter if one is nearby. Or if you have a home shelter, use it. But if regular shelter isn't available, and even if your home has no basement, you could still improvise some limited fallout protection in a first floor hall or room, away from outer walls and windows. Use doors off their hinges, furniture and appliances, plus stacks of other shielding material, such as trunks or drawers, filled with sand or earth to make an enclosure large enough to live in for a short time. Some homes without basements have a crawl space between the first floor and the ground. Select the crawl space area under the center of the house and place shielding material around it. On the floor above, place other shielding material to provide additional protection for the shelter space. For more information on how to improvise fallout protection, Check with your local civil defense director.